Good morning and welcome back to the Eye of Faces, everybody. I am Sir Buckley and I am so glad to see you back on our shores. It's been a long, long old break for us, but to see you all here again, ready for some more Valor Readers slash Scraps and Scrolls, well, it warms my heart. Welcome, come on, come in, grab a log, have a seat, let's get together yet again. Seriously, thank you all for returning, or if we've got any newbies, welcome, welcome, welcome. It is wonderful to be back doing Scraps and Scrolls. Like I say, a long old break between Feast and Dance, I believe our longest ever. Still full of a lot of stuff, still a lot of stuff done, but yes, we're here for the final book of A Song of Ice and Fire so far for this grand old reread project. So, hello, how are you? I personally am talking to you from a very, very rainy England, unfortunately. And I'm happy to report a lot of this episode was recorded in the sunshine, so hopefully that solar energy will uh, be evident throughout. I hope you've all been enjoying your break. I know our fandom is so wonderful that there really is no such thing as a break. You've been getting stuff from History of West or still. They've still been pumping it out. They had their House Blackwood episode recently, part two. I was a part of some of that back in the day a long time ago now when we first wrote that they've been pumping out other stuff as well radio westeros i was lucky enough to join them yet again for one of their streams of winter uh, about a month ago now we talked lady stoneheart you know how much i enjoyed that i know a few of you were there in the live chat so thank you for being there for that support those guys have obviously been amazing covering uh, Cersei and I think House Tyrells recently. I believe Sandok again just this weekend gone. So I know you've all been there enjoying that. But across the fandom it just never stops. I want to give big shout outs to of course Not A Cast and Girls Gone Canon and Davos Fingers with their brilliant new What If episodes. I hope you've been enjoying those as well as me. And I know I've mentioned these guys before but I should probably give a, a big shout out to the Learned Hands pod because they've just exploded onto the scene. I know they've got a whole legion of fans now and it's well deserved so well done to those guys of course and there's many many more i could sit here talking all day about our wonderful fandom and all the podcasts and all the essays and all the videos and everything else my apologies if i don't mention you here but no i love you all i've been enjoying you all and i'm sure all you have on the break as well what about here on the aisle what have we got up to well i'll review for you very very quickly because well we've got a lot to get onto today and a big book to cover but in the gap well i'll tell you what i'll give you a stat first i only put out one episode during September. It was the Dance of Dragons prep episode. Some of you might have caught it. We went over the themes and we did all the nerdy stuff about who has how many POVs and how are they structured and where do they go. I must have said that phrase 50 times probably. Basically I did it so we could get to the, to the prologue a bit quicker today. And firstly I want to say that episode has done really really well in terms of numbers so thank you all for downloading and listening and sharing. But also I'm giving this stat because like I say in September just one episode. And okay that meant that September was our lowest month so far this year for downloads and yet it is clear above anything else any other month from the previous year so that just shows the kind of growth we're on so i want to say thank you for all being a part of that and helping with that and on that note probably before i go any further and tell you what i've been up to i should give special love to our patrons because they are wonderful they do keep me going and they're just great friends and specifically let me say hello welcome back and thank you to km lord commander namian darkling and of course Archmaster June. Hello. Brilliant to have you all back. And there are some good things going on over on our Patreon. If everyone wants to go and have a look, see some tweets to the benefits and new stuff coming up. I'm going to be putting on some of my own fiction writing just as a little cherry on top. Don't worry, it's still in a Song of Ice and Fire Patreon and podcast. We're not losing anything there. Just It's just a little extra. But we've also got some new goals and there's some more benefits coming. So maybe take a look at that if you'd like to. That would be very much appreciated, of course. And we also had probably the biggest thing during the gap was the Storm's End 
patron episode long awaited long podcast lots of work and i was really proud of it if i do say so myself and it seems to have been well received so that's all gone brilliantly hasn't it so we had that first in the gap the storm's end patron only episode where i read from the great castles of westeros we had the dance of dragons prep episode we obviously get ready for this big old book we're about to tackle and still to come is the walk with winterfell my little kind of video guided tour of the little winterfell model i got for my birthday but that's still coming because i'm learning uh, video editing on the fly so that will appear at some point like i say lots of new stuff coming up on patreon so do check that out if you can but that's enough about the break i think let's start looking forward what is it we're going to be doing next what is scraps and scrolls next task well it's a dance with dragons and as i say a lot of the kind of meta stuff looking at the structure of the book and the themes and what it's all about did that in the prep episode so if you haven't listened to that and you want to discuss that a bit go and check that one out first i'm not going to repeat it too much here we're going to kind of dive right in with Varamir. but just going forward I think you've probably seen over on History of Westeros, we're going 19 weeks. So that's our longest thing of the five books. We're going 19 long weeks, yes, a long old time. I believe, as Isa said, we're doing four chapters a week. So that's quite good. I like that structure. Obviously free today, as we normally do, because prologues are normally a big topic of discussion. And well, we're going to roll from there with Tyrion and Jon and Daenerys especially. But we've got Aya and we meet Barry and Melisandre. We've got the Wall and the Stannis. We've got everything going on in Marine. We've got Tyrion's journey across Essos. So there's bunches to cover in what is, of course, a very, very dark book. Now, I'm going to stop myself there because I already know I'm repeating stuff from the prep episode. Instead, let me remind you of what we are specifically covering today. Of course, we open with the prologue, Varamir's prologue, which I will say is probably the darkest chapter in all of Song of Ice and Fire, so prepare yourselves for that. Then we move on to Tyrion 1. We solve the mystery of what happens to Tyrion after the Storm of Swords. Where does he wind up? Who is he with? And then we'll finish today with Daenerys 1. Back to Marine. Hooray, hooray. We conquered Marine. Everything's great. Danny's a queen. Oh, not quite. There turns out there's some problems there, which we'll find out a lot about. So that is today. Obviously, four next week, and then going forward, I believe, is the schedule. So we've got a lot to cover. You're going to have to strap yourselves in for this long journey. I hope you're ready. I certainly am. I know Aziz and Asher are. Maybe we should get going. Before we start with Vamir, I'll just say this on the opening chapters because because obviously already covered the first three here. I've done a lot of the notes for the next four as well. And I've noticed in these opening chapters, George has, I think, two very specific objectives. The first is obviously setting the tone, setting the atmosphere. And, well, wouldn't you know it, it's a bad tone. It's a negative tone. It is, in each chapter, establishing big problems for everyone. Nothing's good. No one's happy. Everyone's in a bad spot. Now, of course, you'll say, well, Joe, this is a song of ice and fire. That's to be expected. True, true, true. Very true. But I think more here in dance than in any other book, everyone from the off is on the back foot, has a lot of problems and just isn't enjoying themselves. So look for that in these first few chapters today and next week. But the second one, which I find more interesting, is George going out of his way to mess with tropes which we know he loves to do that's kind of his hallmark as a writer of this particular series is his inversion of what you expect of the normal story the kind of standard story that we normally get he throws that right out now what do i mean by that specifically well we're going to see it as we go so look for it in these chapters today and next week as well but it's things like normally in a standard kind of hero trope or hero storyline the person progresses level by level. It gets a bit harder, like we saw in Danny's arc last time. She moves from one city to the next. That was kind of standard. But now we're getting the fallout. We're getting what happened to Astapor 
after Danny liberated the Unsullied. We're having the consequences. We're having evil stories coming out of her good intentions from the sack of Marine. Stuff like that. Stuff we normally wouldn't see. You'll see it in Bran 1 next week where we're going to focus a lot on Jojen who's kind of towards the end of fulfilling his role. And normally, if you look at him as kind of like an NPC who's supposed to get the hero somewhere, he's got a specific purpose, he gets him from here to there, points the quest arrow, and then you kind of forget about him. But not so. We're going to focus him on him a lot in this book of the after effect of that. Well, what does it feel after you've done that? How are you supposed to cope when your purpose of life has just been used up and you're not the main guy? George focuses on these extra details and the stuff you, you just don't get in other books so much. And the idea is going to be really explored in, I believe, our last chapter next week in Quentin 1 slash The Merchant's Man, which, of course, is a, is a massive inversion. Quentin's whole arc of the Jolly Boys going out off for an adventure. Oh, we're going to hop across the sea, grab a queen. Dad will be really happy about it. And, well, obviously, right from the get-go, none of that's going to happen. It's going to be a terrible time for all. So just watch for that in these early chapters. I think George is really making a point of putting it in early on that this is not the story you know. This is not going to go how you expect it. And... Well, like I say, mix that with the tone. It's going to be rough. Again, go back to that prep episode if you want to talk more on themes and structure and everything like that. I think it was a good chat. But for now, I say we get our scrapping and scrolling and rolling and tackle the first of our 73 A Dance With Dragons chapters with Varamir. Again, welcome back, everybody. It's great to have you. Thank you for being here. Let's go right now. Varamir. So let's do what we always do with these prologues and look at the beloved prologue pattern. The first thing to note is this is the shortest prologue since Will, so it's quite different already. But mainly, well, this will be the fifth time we speak about Varamir, and that's not even including his actual appearance in the story with John. but because we've spoken about prologues four times already and we really do like to compare them, don't we? So Varamir has always been this dark horizon for us. We always knew we were going to get there and talk about him in the end. This is the last prologue we ever get, so far at least. So where does he fit into this pattern that we've discussed so many times before, especially with Pate? I think I went a bit overboard with the pattern talk there, but you know, I like it. Well, he firstly fits perfectly into the geographic pattern of every odd-numbered book being above the wall. First Will in A Game of Thrones, then Chet in A Storm of Swords, and now Varamir in Book 5, with Crescent and Pate staying down south. So that geography brings a lot of similar plot points. The cold, which is worse than ever now, the wall or the Night's Watch, and of course an ending with whites slash others, which links into the magical pattern also, which pretty much follows the same line to be honest. 1, 3 and 5, very magical based. 2 and 4, not so much that it has got similar elements. Crescent and Pate, they do have big moments at the end in terms of the magical with Crescent and Melisandre, and then Pate and Jacken or the Alchemist or whoever that is, but mainly their prologues, their chapters are more political based or more just normal based down south. Now, in fairness, Will and Chet, they also have their big magical moments at the end, but there's just the larger presence of that type of thing in their chapters, especially with Will. There's something creepy going on. We don't know what it is. And then obviously in Chet, we do know what it is. And we're always worrying just because of where he is. We already set up the Fist of the First Men as that kind of creepy location. So we just keep going with that. Now, Varamir is damn near nonstop. He blows that type of thing out of the water. It's magical all the way through. It's easily the most magical based prologue. It's probably one of the most magical based chapters we ever get. And when I say magical, I don't mean straight up kind of like Melisandre magic, but just that eerie side of things, that unnatural, paranormal, whatever you want to call it, that side of things. We get this deep dive into warging and the rules of what to do and what not to do, uh, the rules of second life. We get some of the religion and spirituality of the wildlings. 
along with discovering the warging community in general, all this stuff we never knew before. And again, we bring that all to a head with another attack by by whites. And well, I don't think others are actually there, but by whites to keep up that theme, that reminder, that constant reminder from George, punctuated very regularly here. One, three, and five. These things are coming. You need to be aware, especially in this book. On top of that, we'll have cannibalism, betrayal, lots and lots of cold, and abominations in every direction. So definitely setting the tone like we'll speak about in a minute. In terms of other patterns we can see across the prologues, well, this one is the second villainous character. Will, we liked, fine, Crescent, great, Chet, no, we do not like you. Pete, you are a bit of a dick, but okay, you're not that bad. Brown there, the worst, easily the worst, you will see in a second. If there's any doubt in your mind, cast that out. Yes, Chet is bad. He's nowhere near as bad as Faramir. But it is interesting, which I'm assuming we probably talked about when we're back in Chet's prologue, it is surprising how similar those two are in that they fit back into this pattern. They're both people we knew before. We'd met Chet very briefly in Game of Thrones. We've met Faramir again briefly, probably a bit more than Chet. We knew him slightly more. He just stands out more because he's a war and we don't see many of those. But they're both the villainous characters. So that's something that George is playing with there. And again, it's more setting of the tone. Let's start with a villain. Let's start with a really bad guy, the worst guy, because this isn't going to be a fun book. So I don't want to start with anyone you like. I don't want to start with anyone you can get uh, on board with. This is Vamir, who is repulsive in every way. Let me start with this taste of horribleness, because that's what you're going to get in this book, says George. So the main purposes of such a brutal chapter is setting the future tone, not just for Bran in this book, in terms of the abomination stuff that we'll talk about in a second, but also likely for John at the end of the book and going forward into Winds, and he being the character most connected with the setting and this POV character in the first place, that works. You think Varamir, well, who's met Varamir? It's John. You think of the Wilding Battle, who was the POV who showed us that? It was John. So that makes sense, and yes, at first glance, this is all about Bran, but then later when we reach the end of the book, the theories start flying, you actually realise, oh, this is probably a big old hint, a big old warning about what John is going to do to get back to life. We assume. I think that's fairly set within the fandom. Now, what do we learn in the chapter? What do we learn? What is the point of this prologue specifically? Why did George give it to us? Well, the most blatant message is how you absolutely do not walk into another human ever it's really important remember how much of a big deal we made about gastrite and the breaking of that well this seems even more central like a thousand times more essential to not break that thing so that sets off alarm bells straight away before we even think of what's going on in dance and what's going on in this chapter because we've already seen bran do this with hodor back at queen's crown and at the nightfall as well Brand didn't know. We didn't blame him at the time, even if we felt uncomfortable. We didn't know how bad it was. Even if we kind of guessed, we didn't know it was this bad. But it's happened. We know it's happened by this point. So we're already wondering what is going to be the reaction. What punishment, if any, will Bran have to pay for this crime? And of course, we feel even worse for Hodor than we did the first time around when we see what happens to Thistle at the end of this chapter. Yeah, that is an eye-opener. It's Hodor experiencing that kind of pain and torture when Bran does it and he just can't communicate the feeling properly. Just the idea, it breaks your heart. Again, we're going in very, very deep here, right at the deep end. George is not giving us any kind of warm-up. And that feeling multiplies if Hodor knows it's his friend in Bran that's doing it to him. And of course, we'll see more of that pain later in the book. So it's really, yeah, just setting the mark. Now, as for the John stuff, the most blatant that we learn and the most important is the idea of second life and escaping true death by whipping yourself into an animal instead, like we mentioned a minute ago. So as George likes to do and certainly did with Feast, he tells us about the ending of the book back at the beginning. Here, a warg dies and goes into his animal. At or near the end of Dance, a warg dies and... 
well, we don't know what happens, but now we've got a big clue, don't we? Certainly that seems to be what George is telling us, and I think that's what everyone agrees what is going to happen to John. So normally we talk about how much of a prologue will connect to the book that it precedes. Vamir manages that brilliantly with Bran, but manages to likely connect to the next book just as much. I don't think any other prologue manages that. Maybe Will, we can kind of make a connection to Will and the Great Ranging in Clash, but in general, Vamir knocks out of the park. And more so than the first four, this is a prologue that focuses on teaching us an aspect of the world or aspects of the world that we really only had hints about before. This time around it obviously been warging. We had a lot of that in Feast, we, this whole thing that we we knew about Old Town and we knew about the Maces, but we didn't know the details, so very similar here. But really, I think beyond all that, this is just supposed to set the tone. It's supposed to be the creepiest, the most horrible of, of all prologues, so that we get ready for a very similar book. So I think we should probably jump right in because although I say it is second shortest, there is a lot to talk about, as you'd imagine. So let's begin on page one, line one. Let me quote it to you here. The night was rank with the smell of man. As with, I think, all the previous four books, we kick off with a single line, normally pretty dark in nature, to draw us right into what you would expect. Pretty dark books, aren't they? Last time out, the word was dragons. And even though that was supposed to be a book without dragons in it, we discovered those themes really did show out by the end. This time, in a book that very much does have dragons included, and it even has them in the title, we're refocusing on man, the smell of them, and specifically this word rank. That's a great choice of words because it tells us something is wrong. Rank is not a nice sounding word. It sounds corruptive and like there's something bad going down. And that fits right into the mood of the whole book, doesn't it? This whole thing is about everything just going wrong. It all feels bad. The mood is low, so let's start off that way. And we can even relate it to the connection of man. Man smells bad because man is doing bad in this book with slavery and cannibalism, what the hell Tyrion has become. Humanity smells wrong at this moment in time because society is collapsing. And like I say, everything is just going wrong. Or we can even take it more literal. Smells themselves are pretty prevalent in Dan, seems to me. We will be smelling the cold later on. Danny will smell her own burnt hair, I think. And we have the terrible leavings of the pale mare everywhere. In just a few chapters time, Quentin will poignantly tell us that adventure stinks. So again, it's more setting up of what we're going to be getting later on. But that's all just in a single line. And it's hard to concentrate on that when the second word of the next paragraph is walk. So here's our confirmation. Here is something very different. We've been lots of places and in lots of different people for these prologues, but we've never been in a walk. We've never been in any walk that isn't a Stark. And even out of those, it's only been Bran who's really been fully aware of it and been able to control it. So we know this is going to be a very different, very interesting experience. And some fans might have even wondered if this was a Stark we're getting here. How awful would it have been to open a prologue and find Rickon, for example? Oh, good God, no. No, thank you. We're also going to guess, based on this single word alone, that we are somewhere in the north or above the wall because that's where wargs have always been centered and a good many might have even been guessing that this is Varamir because we haven't met all that many in the past Orel is already supposedly dead and the eagle-eyed no pun intended might remember that Varamir slunk off at the end of the battle with Stannis even if that seems ages ago to us and at the same time I'm reminded hey the wildlings are around a warg is probably going to be a wildling, so that's something we've also never experienced before. That's completely new for these prologues and for POVs in general, so great new experiences so far. Now the first full paragraph about smells of humans and being able to differentiate between living animals and the old furs that these humans are wearing puts us straight back into the mind of Bran. Even though we've had snippets of John and Aya doing the same thing, but which I mean warging, it is Bran chapters that remind us of this feeling of the prose being an animal form. 
And you've got to think that's a very deliberate decision by George to start the chapter in this manner, so we get that feeling straight away. Not just because of the overall connection that this prologue is going to have with Bran thematically, like we've just discussed, but because it has been a really, really long time since we've seen Bran. It's the longest gap we ever get between POVs for anyone except Theon. And though he only gets three chapters in this book, like we discussed in the primer, he's going to be very important, not just in this book, but obviously going forward. So we need to remind ourselves what that's like to be in Bran's shoes. But what about the here and now before we start thinking too far away from our actual POV character? What's going on? Well, we know we have a warg in some animal's body. I think we all naturally assume a wolf because of the Stark stuff that we've already had before, but that isn't confirmed for us just yet. And we have them, whatever the animals are, smelling slash approaching people. If we're going with the assumption that this isn't a Stark, then tension is raised immediately. Pretty much all the wolves we've met have been painted as enemies, so the reader is immediately worried that some kind of conflict is going to occur here. Wild animals versus humans. The tension, the hook, whatever you want to call it, is set in the very first paragraph, so good work, George, you get an A. And that feeling is doubled down on in the next paragraph as we learn that the warg is not alone. There's a pack, they're hunting, and they're hunting for meat. Now, it's not clear if there's a pack of wargs, if this is one warg with an animal pack. I think that's the way it leans to, but you could be forgiven for thinking the other way. Whatever, it doesn't mean good news for the humans, does it? So now, we're not only pretty damn convinced that these are wolves because of the pack thing, but now also that tension has just skyrocketed because we know this pack intends harm to these humans. And that's an interesting inversion, because remember, we're coming fresh off a book with plenty of wolf references down in the Riverlands, so we're familiar with the concept, but that was Nymeria's crew, and by and large, we saw them as a good things. They normally eat furries for a start. This time, eh, not so sure, we're already a bit worried, and we definitely will be in a second. We also have our suspicions of this being set somewhere north, pretty much confirmed with the detailing of their breath and the ice in their paws. Yeah, it's very cold, where do we associate that with? North, probably above the wall. So we might be worried for these humans, but the idea of conflict is still prevalent as our walk POV points out there is numbers and weapons to consider. But then we find out there's also a baby among the humans, and our mental image of these people changes pretty quickly. It's not a great gathering of soldiers, this isn't a squad or a soldier or anything like that. They might just be stragglers, they might be alone. So our concern for one side over the other begins to grow again. But George doesn't leave much time for all of that as he goes back to his classic damning single lines. Then the pack was on them. Oh dear. Straight into it. Our group of humans get a mere two short paragraphs for their fight, if you can even call it that. The two men of the group are taken out immediately, one from behind, with our POV first killing a mother and then the whole pack joining in on eating a human baby alive even as its dying mother tries to protect it with her body. Well, welcome to A Dance of Dragons, everybody. As far as tone setting goes, I'm not sure George has ever been much clearer than this. Scratch that. Has he ever even been this downright evil? Have we actually seen anything this bad before? You can make a real argument that we haven't, and just consider what that statement means for A Song of Ice and Fire, because we've seen some pretty bad things. We know how much the Red Wedding hurts us, and the horrible battles we've seen, the atrocious sexual violence, and yes, we have heard similar tales of children suffering such woe. But actually being present for a baby, being eaten alive, being present in someone's body who's doing that by choice, well, we're on a different level of the crypts now, aren't we? This is really the lower level stuff. And George says wind is going to be worse, so that does make you think, doesn't it? Now, even if we narrow it down to prologues, we've had men killed by dead things, an old man being killed by a magical witch, and a young man being tricked into giving something up only to receive death. None of those match this. This is one of, if not, the most sickening scene in all A Song of Ice and Fire. Again, just consider what that actually means. 
and we're in the perpetrator's head for it. We need to stress that. The language used, the way these people are dehumanized and just represented in terms of meat and milk, the way the men just aren't any match whatsoever, and the heart-crushing feeling we get of this mother first brandishing a dagger to try and protect her child and then when that fails and all hope is gone just trying to wrap the baby up in any protection she can give seriously damn george this is enough to get a lot of the people to put the book down already we're like a page in what a scene to begin with or evil and darkness to welcome us to the book it is it's horrible i know it's made up as fiction but come on reading this is horrible i can't describe it to be honest of course this links with a billion themes mainly that one about this book being a book where bad things happen. But we'll also talk a lot about the consumption of human meat, which I, I believe will come up even more in wins, the hopelessness of humanity versus certain elements of nature, and we have this note of frozen snow turning pink. I'm pretty sure Bran will see very similar imagery in his final weirwood vision. I'd have to check, but I'm pretty sure that comes up. And we have to imagine the same happens around John at the end of the book. So we're already getting those brand John in the book and end of the book connections. And like I said, this is all on the first damn page, on my version anyway. We get all that, including the realisation that we're inside this sicko's head for the remainder of the chapter now. Before even realising who we are, we haven't been told yet. Only now do we get the confirmation that, far away, we do indeed have Varamir as our prologue POV. And if he made us uncomfortable before when we met him, it's nothing to now. Especially when the guy is licking his lips as he unwalks. He's licking his lips as he remembers the taste of a baby's flesh. Now, we do get a little relief as we find that Vramir's six skins is not in his best shape. He's cold and coughing, dehydrated and starving, likely in a lot of pain. Plus, he feels some level of guilt. Really, it's more like shame at what he's just witnessed and semi-relished. So does that relieve him in our minds? Do we let him off? Can we make the argument he was just along for the ride in the mind of an animal doing exactly what animals do? Well, you can make the argument, but you aren't going to find many people who are going to listen to it. From there, we get our first bump mention, with no explanation just yet of what that means, as well as the same for Hagon, who we can assume is some kind of mentor, teacher, partner, as we get the first of the Grand Warg rules, these guidelines that we've never really heard of despite us having been warging all the way back since Game of Thrones, the first of which is, the man who eats the flesh of man is an abomination. Get used to that word, I would have, I mean. Varamir focuses on this one, and so should we. No, we haven't technically just witnessed it, but we've come pretty close. Varamir was there, he felt it, he liked it, he hungered for it. So this still applies in my mind. We've dealt with cannibalism before in these books, and we will hear again in Dance a lot. And again, I expect it to be a major, major theme come wins, and maybe spring as well, for all we know. And it's wrong. Wrong on the base level. Already this feels like something more basic and important even than guest right, like I said earlier. Abomination. Abomination. It's repeated over and over. And we can agree to string this out to what we're going to see in this book in general. A lot of people act like abominations in dance. Is there a better word for what early Tyrion gives us, really? Now, there are other rules, too. There's cannibalism, like we said. To mate with animals as a warg, also abomination. But probably most importantly, trying to warg into another human is the worst abomination. Uh-oh. The reader's heart stops for a beat. We've seen this somewhere before. Those first two sound pretty damn dire, and yet we know... Bran has already done something worse. Unknowingly, sure, like we mentioned before. Because he was forced to by the situation, okay, though that excuse will fall by the wayside during this book, but it's bad all the same. Even if we don't think of it specifically here, this may well be the beginning of a very bad slide Bran, one he has as little control over as Rob and Catelyn did on their own death slide. 
He's already committed one sin. Later in this book, he'll definitely eat human meat and possibly blood as well with the Jojen pace. Again, not his fault, but he did do those things. So does intent matter for these rules? Is Bran exempt because he's a child? We've no idea, but we certainly have enough reason to be worried. Will Bran become a monster? Is that what we're already witnessing? As always, I refer you back to my idea that each dark child is going to be dark or evil in some way, but for Bran, it seems the possibility is much, much worse. We do have later on much more explicit descriptions of the pain that Hodor is going through when this happens, or the uncomfortableness, or whatever you want to call it, and Bran is aware of that, and also, he's not telling the others that he's doing this to Hodor. So I think he does know on some level this is wrong and he is kind of guilty about it. He just doesn't know how to uh, manifest that properly yet. There are also some ideas floating around about Bran's feelings for Mira and how that could also end up breaking some of these laws. But I don't think we really want to talk about that, do we? But again, definitely on a slide. Now we learn more about Varamir as well here. That slight guilt slash shame from before is completely out the window now, as we learn he killed his own mentor and indulged in this law of eating human flesh, or not eating human flesh rather. He makes the argument it doesn't count. He was a wolf. He never physically did it himself. Hmm, I call suspect. He made the decision. He definitely liked doing it. So how much difference is there at the end of the day? And Varamir continues with his self-arguing to rid himself of the guilt. These people he's just brought down far away were fleeing from defeat. So we can guess they are refugees from the wall battle and therefore once on the same team as Varamir, so to speak, just to make this act even worse, an act of betrayal as well. And he says, well, they would have died soon anyway, so I might as well do it. I might as well get something out of it. Starvation and exposure are also going to be huge elements going forward in this book and beyond. But that's really beside the point and Varamir doesn't invaradeer yeah, I think Aziz will like that one, himself to us any further. Besides, we know plenty of wildlings do survive much longer than this point in time because John himself finds them and saves them and some go to Hardheim or whatever. So it's not 100% they would have died, although it is very possible. Next, we are introduced to Thistle, the only other character we actually meet in the flesh in this chapter, which I believe might be a record. The Game of Thrones prologue with Will only had three living, breathing characters in it and then the others, but it seems as if we've edged that this time round. I've racked my brains but I can't think of another so do feel free to correct me there. So we've talked about this little band that he's just attacked but he also used to have a little group, a little band, and they've either gone or died so at least it's a little comfort to know that Vamir has been abandoned and seems likely to die from the nasty wound he sustained, especially when we find he did not care for any of these people anyway, or the ever-loyal Thistle, who is still, still around, and he only wanted to keep them to do that third and final abomination himself. The only reason he didn't is cowardice, not for any decency to the people around him. So here the camera kind of pans out a bit, and we will call the wider situation that Mance's grand, slow-moving army slash people slash exodus was shattered by Stannis in the battle underneath the wall. And while many died at the time, I think we were given actual figures back in Storm, many thousands upon thousands were forced to run back into the forest from whence they came, leadless, aimless, and now, for so many, lifeless. This will be one of the ever-plaguing problems, the type that John and Danny share throughout Dance. John, wondering where the wildlings are, what they are doing, are they lining up with the Weeper, with Tormund, are they going to attack the wall again, have they fled, have they fed the army of the others? 
we'll find out the answers to some of those questions but yes that is definitely especially for the end of this chapter pointed out as a problem to us how many of these people are suffering a similar fate to Thistle and others of feeding the army of the dead that's why this fits into that one three five prologue pattern of something to do with the others because we know they are gathering more and more people now yes this is about warging and Vermeer and John and Bran but again it's that overall message of they're getting closer they're getting stronger as if they weren't enough of a problem already and actually those questions i just asked reread also know the answer to be yes to all of them it's all of those things we'll be seeing evidence for all of them in bran and especially john's chapters as well as melisandre's as john and others pointed out many times mance was the key to this grand migration without him it's all fallen apart completely Vamir even has the cheek to mention some of the runners have been killed by those once considered on the same side, ignoring he himself was part of that like five minutes ago. That's exactly what he was doing, just because he was a wolf doesn't make any difference. And in a moment, Vamir gives us some hints to those specific directions that some of the wild things are going, so we may as well speak about it here. This part, John really would have liked to be a frozen fly on the tree for. The Weeper is indeed gathering people and wants to take the Bridge of Skulls. That's over in the west by the uh, Shadow Tower. Hundreds have simply just gone back where they came from because they don't know anything else. So that's interesting, is it? Do we think these ones might have been lucky enough to go past the others and whites already the, this far south and therefore escape the terrible fate for humanity, kind of double back? I say no. I've never seen the others as this like singular party coming along in one uniform line, in one part of the forest and in another part of the forest. I've always imagined it as one unending wave. So I would guess that these few hundred that have tried to go back all the way north to their homes have now joined the ranks of the dead. So again, we have that idea of the dead and the others just getting stronger and stronger. That is the main point, as much as George might distract us with all this walking stuff. That is the main point point of the chapter surely anyway even if they did get past them the winter would be simply unsurvivable that far north you would think we also hear of mother mole for the first time here and this vision of fleets of ships coming to take the wild things away now that whole storyline is very interesting one we expect to really raise its head in winds we've already got some hints later on in dance about dead things in the water we hear about slavers coming and somehow making life even worse for the wild things thanks to Aya's later chapters and john specifically will give us the story or the history of hard home's cursed past in one of his chapters so there's a lot of ideas out there about how this is going to play out and affect the wider plot and i believe my favorite is the idea of it involving davos either on his way to or back from skagos and perhaps helping out the wildlings maybe using his old smuggling skills etc etc so we really look forward to finding out about that one i think the larger point though is like i say the wildlings are broken they're going in three different directions or more plenty are just milling around in the middle and loads are dying as john will warn later to uh, bowen marsh and all the other officers this plays into the hands of the others again 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 let's hammer it at home that's the point of the chapter. This is playing into the hands of the others. Although remember, in terms of wildlings still out there in the forest, many will come back south thanks to Val's efforts of recruiting Tormund and John opening the wall, which is easily one of the most monumental events in the series, let alone the book. So yeah, okay, John does make some mistakes in dance and he pays for them. But getting that amount of people back underneath the wall, not only saving the majority of their lives, it takes a huge, huge blow to the recruitment of the others. And John is never going to get any thanks for that. No one's even going to realise. But we as readers know. So we should applaud John for that. So does Varamir spend any time grieving for his broken people, the, the promise of Mance and what they're all doing it for? Remember how passionate Egret was about all that? 
No. Ram is not into it as much. Does he care about the pain they're all suffering out there as they freeze and die? No, of course not. He zeroes in on his own situation and ego as he broods on how far he's fallen, with Thistles not recognising him as Varamir being the catalyst. That in itself is quite interesting. This is a man who spent half his life literally unrecognisable as he sits behind the eyes of animals and the faces of animals, but now his human form is also anonymous and it's strange for him. There's also a bit of departure from our normal prologue characters. For the most part, they've been youngish men aspiring to some greatness rather than remembering what came before. Crescent is the obvious outlier, age-wise, and he does his share of lamenting the olden days, but that's nothing to do with his ego or personal prestige, it's for care of other people around him. But the others all had at least some level of dream, and perhaps, apart from Will, had a plan to attain it. Vamir is the opposite, he's the one who rose high, in his opinion anyway, and has now fallen on very hard times. Ego plays a part in almost all POVs, but none so much as this, I feel. And it's also funny that he makes a point of Thistle not recognising him here, considering one of the final lines of the chapter, but we'll come back to that later. Here's the next quote for you. I ate his heart and drank his blood, and still he haunts me. So Ram is using a fake name. This isn't his original name, and there's something else that happens a lot in this book. Identity is always so very prevalent in this series, but this line itself is interesting. We've already seen, and will do going forward, that Varamir decries Hagon at every turn. He blames him and hates him, but is still bound by his lessons and teachings. He's still guilty. Hagon has real estate in Varamir's mind, as they say. It reminds me very much of Theon's troubles with Ned, which we'll also see some major progression for later in the book. Varamir continues his self-pity ride as he admits he's going to die, and that again makes him a bit of an outlier as a prologue POV. Though we as readers always know the prologue characters are doomed, this is the first one to also know it, to admit it to himself. Will and Pate had no idea that was coming. Crescent does end up bringing that about for himself by choice, and Chet was specifically trying to escape what he thought would likely mean his death in the attack on the wildlings. But Varamir is actually already dying, which gives his thoughts a very different focus to those other prologue characters there. And why is he dying? Because a child knifed him when Varamir tried to take a cloak from the child's dead mother. So already we are getting at least some payback for the crimes we witnessed at the beginning of the chapter. In fairness, there is some level of that in the chapter as a whole, but that's still to come. And again, in fairness, of all Varamir's crimes, I would say the one that kills him, this knifing, actually isn't a crime. I don't begrudge a freezing, starving man taking the cloak from a woman already dead to save his own life. I don't think that's a crime. Even if I doubt he was thinking of the woman respectfully in any way, and he might have tried to take it from her if she was still living. But as we say, it's all deserved anyway. He's getting what he deserves. He also laments all his ego has lost, his trinkets and prizes, because this is obviously a man obsessed with what he can own, whether it be an animal or a physical item. Perhaps his low birth, that we're about to learn about later, attributes to that. Out of the items listed, the hanks of hair from women he bedded sounds the most creepy, and the golden arm rings from Mance are the most interesting. Remember, Tormund also was gifted some of those. Perhaps more fun for us is his memory of being burned out of Varel's eagle by Melisandre's magic, and again, he has to settle that by pointing out that others ran as well, not just him. Oh, I'm not afraid, I'm not a coward, everyone's doing it. All ego. That memory of magic from Melisandre brings about a really important aspect of the chapter, second life. First, Varamir describes how the pain from that fire was worse than any of the nine other deaths he suffered before, and so very unlike George to use the number nine instead of seven for this type of thing. Hmm, weird. How the magic came from inside him somehow, so we get even more ramped up for that later Melisandre chapter. And we get a bit of a chuckle how Varamir died once by fire, and will soon die by ice, or the power of it anyway. 
But what about this second life thing? Let's focus on that. Well, the first part to wrap our heads around is what happens if you're in the mind of an animal who dies. It's not something we've had to consider before, really. Firstly, because the Starks have always just been linked to the one animal, aside from Bran, who has yet to actually do that yet, but also because the situation hasn't really cooled for it. Bran has been inside Summer once when he got hurt, and that was enough to force him back to his body. I don't think it's happened with Ghost, but again, correct me if I'm wrong. Oh, maybe it did happen with Ghost in Clash, when he first spied Mance's army. Possibly. What we don't want to consider, really, is that perhaps Rob did experience it. And we're definitely really, really hoping that Sansa didn't somehow unknowingly go into Lady just before her death. Pretty sure that didn't happen, but well, let's just be glad it didn't happen. So the critical thing we first cover is that you can be warging an animal, that animal can die, but you can survive still. So what about the reverse? Can you be killed and then go into your animal? And the answer is yes. Technically, we already knew that. We saw Aurel do it with the eagle, or John assumed anyway. But now we're really putting the spotlight on the idea. And as we've discussed already, this is really the whole point of the chapter. It is just huge for the end of the book and the link between Dance John and Wind's John. I think we can all agree John's death and resurrection might be the biggest plot point of the third act prior to the actual ending of the series so it doesn't get much more important than this does it and that's just the immediate we all believe john is coming back for all we know this might end up being a genuine ending for one of the starks at the end of the series this, this might be how one of them winds up or maybe all of them that's not the ending we'd want but then again imagine if all the starks ended up as a pack of wolves together with one little bird fluttering above for sansa yeah weird to think about beautiful in its way i guess but probably not the ending we want another question going forward which is kind of presented here and later on is the idea of a person losing themselves the longer they are in an animal which is obviously you can't really control if you die and then go into that animal full time that's going to happen and that's not a new idea but it is brought to the forefront here and it's something we will be watching the clock for at the beginning of wins one day of john and ghost two day of john and ghost what happens if it's three days a week a month we don't know do we we really don't know Anyway, we've already spoken a lot about that connection to John, so let's zoom back to what's actually happening with Varamir. The fire has gone out in this little hut he finds himself in. His death is hastening, and he believes that Thistle has abandoned him. He does a good job reminding us how vile he is as he focuses on her looks. Again, thinks how he should have committed the ultimate sin and taken her by force, and tops that off by believing he is generally worth more than her. He says, I am a great man. I am Varamir, the warg, the skin changer. It is not right that she should live and I should die. Yes, pretty darn vile. That feeling of abandonment, which we'll also come back to at the end, opens up a new section of the chapter as we go back in Varamir's past. And do not expect any warm stories here. In fact, don't even expect merely bad stories. Instead, we are getting some further horrifying stories, not all that dissimilar from what we had at the beginning of the chapter. Before we get there, we have him being thrown from his parents for a yet unknown reason, and given to Hagon, where a kind of Jedi-Padawan relationship seemed to grow. And that's another good link to the upcoming book, as we could say that Bran is journeying through the lands above the wall to find the exact same thing. He needs his Jedi Master, he needs to become the Padawan. As we guessed earlier, it was this abandonment, if you want to call it that, I'm not really sure, from his parents that gave him this ego issue. He literally wanted to go back and show them what they gave up, these people who only gave him the name Lump. He not only got himself a new name, but a whole horde of new animals, and Premance even had himself this little setup where, although he calls himself a lord, he was basically Craster with powers. He sits in some horrible mud house and terrorises the local villages with his animals. He's the bad guy in an old wives' tale, a fairy tale if you want. And it turns out we were also right about those hanks of hair being creepy as hell. We want to associate walking with being noble. We've seen it in the Starks, we've seen it with our beloved direwolves. But it turns out it really depends on the person. 
Varamir chose to use this ability to signal to local villagers they were to send their young women to him or else. <laughs> Imagine if Peter Baelish was a war, that's probably what he would do as well. On the I am a piece of shit checklist, Faramir is working really, really hard to make sure no box is left unmarked. On top of everything else, he's fine with weeping women coming to his bed. He's a rapist. He's one of the creepiest, worst people we meet. He's awful. I cannot overstate that enough. I don't want to focus on this passage about the women and killing the people that come after them and stuff like that. Yeah, he's awful. Luckily, this awful man is still dying. He's still alone back in the present. So we've got that going for us. And he truly feels alone as he takes a peek outside and sees winter in all its glory. Something we'll be looking at a lot in John and Bran and everyone else's chapters, especially in terms of watching that moon. And of course, there is a weirwood tree here in this little abandoned village, because there must always be a weirwood tree. And we're really going to be focusing on those a lot too in this book. They really do make a comeback. The mystery of Thistle continues at the same time. For first-time readers, we have no idea whether she has actually abandoned Varamir, or has been killed, or is coming back. For rereaders, we really wish it had been the first option. Just leave him. Just leave him fizzle and go. Now we get a rundown of Varamir's former crew as he hears the wolves out there in the night. He's lost his shadow cat and his bear. And you have to feel some very powerful pity for these animals, even in the description of finally being free of Varamir's control during the battle. The shadow cat ran away as quickly as possible, whereas the snow bear wanted revenge on anyone it could reach. It's an honest pang to the heart for any animal lover when Varamir describes how the bear hated him entering his mind how she fought and strained against it. Faramir is not an innocent child. He knows full well the pain and distress and violation he is committing, and he does it anyway. So those very, very uncomfortable feelings rise up again for Bran and Hodor. That corrosive taste in our stomach grows more and more as we go through the chapter, and we really do worry about what's happening with Bran and Hodor. But his wolves are a different tier to Faramir. They are closer to him, the link is stronger. And that makes sense given what the die wolves are like. We even get a little explanation on why dogs and wolves are easier, and Varamir uses the comparison putting on a boot. I'm pretty sure Bran makes the very same analogy when thinking about his later taking of Hodor, so that in itself is sad to see as we compare our favourite gentle giant with an animal. And there's some extra information as well on what animals suit best and how an animal's natural traits will transfer over to you if you spend too long inside them. And I think the main point of this is to support the idea that John who we think will spend some decent time in Ghost, is going to come back more animalistic and wolfish than he was before. We spoke about that in that great podcast from Joe Magician and Bookshelf Stud about that idea with San Rixin as well. So does that mean he inherits the general traits of a wolf or and is just a bit angrier and wilder than before? Or will he take on Ghost's specific characteristics? Is there even room for John to come back mute? It's possible, isn't it? There's also a note about how birds are a bad idea, so that might not be great for those idea we had about Sansa. Never mind. But as with everything that George has created, nothing is so simple. There are always layers. And it turns out that the war community is as varied as any other we hear about, and that these other skin changes just made Varamir all the more ambitious. We already knew that Varamir killed Hagon, but now we get more details, as Varamir specifically denied him a second life, taking Hagon's own wolf from him. And Hagon is listed as weeping because of it. So again, the evil of Varamir six skins takes another leap. It's very emotional, this connection. Just because Varamir chooses to use it as a token of ownership and violation doesn't mean it's so for everyone. Just look at the Starks. We really, really, really have to hope that none of Bran, Jon, Aya or Rickon ever have to suffer through another warg taking their direwolf from them. We would hope that isn't even possible, that they're on another level themselves, on another tier, and the connection is just way too personal and powerful. But we also know that George has a cruel streak. If that does happen, that is definitely not a passage I want to read 
just uh, you can't can't even I can't even imagine the pain of having those diabolic if someone took ghost away from John stole ghost away and went into ghost's mind and uh, or for any of the others no I don't want let's move on I don't want to talk about that it is while thinking on this forced taking that an idea finally occurs to Vramir. This one exit loop that we've already established is an abomination, a crime against nature, the blackest sin of all, as it's described here, taking Thistle. And not even in the way that Bran inhabits Hodor. No, no, he wants to take her permanently. This is a new abomination. He wants to completely steal her body and then keep it for his own, a second life in a human. That hasn't been raised at all yet. So really, how different is this? what the others do with their whites. It certainly sounds like the worst crime there possibly could be. He lists that Hagen would hate it, Mance would hate it, he even believes he would lose his precious gift, the thing he's based his entire life on, and that's still preferable to death. That's pretty interesting considering we've just had all this setup of the second life and how much nicer it's supposed to be. Vamir would still rather steal actual life, he'd still rather be a human, and that's the life of a, of a woman he considers so far beneath him because of her looks and gender, so that says something as well. Again, Varamir is just upping the scales of his own monstrosity. Is there anything worse than this crime? I have to ask you the question again. Is there anything more objectifying or dehumanising than how he fused Thistle here as just a, as a coat to put on? I don't think there is. It's just fully disgusting. It's mean of George to make us suffer through this guy to start this new book. But where he makes up for it is every time we hear some particularly vile thing about Varamir. It's normally followed up by a description of the physical pain he's in. So we get plenty of that now to make up for this very worst thing that we've just heard about. His fever's up, starvation as well. He's bleeding out in the snow. Again, flashing rereaders forward to John's end. He even has a weirwood crutch that fails him. So Vamir now lies in the snow, clearly dying, and we all get to rejoice. One interesting note is he thinks on how he's gone through this and never even got to see what was on the other side of the wall. His entire life, even with all its deaths, and he never got to see what was on the other side. That's just so strange for us to think about, isn't it? It's true for a very large number of wild things, but that is also something else that will change in this book for the majority of them, or a large number of them anyway. He forgets his fissile plan for now, resigning himself to a second life inside one of his wolves, forgetting that the majority of people don't have such a luxury. He acts like it's the worst thing in the world. But which to choose? Ramid deliberates for a bit while also revealing yet more abomination rule-breaking that is pretty much too creepy to talk about and further backs up this idea of man and beast merging the more time you spend inside after death until it is all beast and no man. It's almost as if George really wants us to pay attention to that fact. Hmm. But just in case we aren't, we now get given Jon Snow by name as Vramir uses Aurel as his example for what can be left over in the mind and what kind of transference there can be. Here's a quote. Man, it should have let me take the direwolf. That would be a second life worthy of a king. Okay, George, you can be a little less direct if you like. I get it. This isn't Game of Thrones anymore. We're moving towards the end. You haven't got time to be subtle. But come on, this is just a bit too upfront, isn't it? Yes, we know. Second worthy of a king. Okay, we get it. But the first part of the quote is interesting as well. Why wouldn't Mance let Vamir take the direwolf, take Ghost? Would it not have been super handy to have one of those near you, on your side, instead of with someone you don't fully trust? First question is, is Vamir being genuine here, or is he covering up for his own mistakes? Does he remember it as Mance not allowing him to take Ghost, because in reality he couldn't? Yeah, we certainly hope so. Or is it because Mance already respected John enough to leave that alone? Perhaps he thought Ghost would be of specific use in their mission going south which makes sense until they're climbing over the wall part. It could well be that he was wary of giving Varamir too much power. Mance is a smart guy. He knows what Varamir is. He's probably already got too much going for him for Mance's liking. Back to John, he's specifically noted as being strong in the warging gift. Clearly, those in the know of such things, like Varamir, 
no more than John does himself at the moment. He's barely scratched the surface, hasn't he? That will improve slightly in this book. But game recognises game by the looks of it. So Lex is starting to think about that John and the others have room to improve. Bran is actually about to be taught about it all, although warging seems to be kind of be second on the slate behind Greensearing now. Still. So there's lots to look forward to. In terms of John, even being untaught, we still figure he's going to achieve this difficult part that the chapter focuses on, going into an animal when you die. Even though he's going to be doing it without realising it or aiming for it or knowing what he's doing, just because his gift is that strong. And talking of this, Eva gets you theory crafting that Rob did the same thing with his wolf with Greywind and leapt into the river and survived, or fed up that he didn't. Because he didn't know. He wasn't as natural as John. Well, maybe he was. We don't really know that. Or possibly he wasn't able to because he was just too far away from Greywind or whatever. We don't really know, do we? Or you can take the grim view that he did manage it and yet immediately died anyway. So two deaths for one of our favourite characters instead of one. Eh, probably better just not to think about it. Although, what I will say, the last thing on John, it's another connection back to Chet. We've said they're very similar, these two uh, prologue POVs. This is another similarity. They both knew John before. They both hated John. So, yeah. Now, we've had Bran foreshadowing. We've had John foreshadowing. Let's try some Theon now, as Varamir breaks down beneath the stair of the weirwood tree and considers all his past crimes. His judgment day has come, he figures, and at the very least, he recognises his actions have been bad. The killing and the raping, the breaking of these natural laws of warging. But even then, he won't take the responsibility. He blames the beast, he blames the gods for making him so in the first place. So do we buy this argument this time round? Do we buy the idea that Varamir is really just a victim of his own nature? No, we absolutely do fucking not. That kind of quote, and a lot of this chapter in general actually, it puts me back to Jorah's old quote from I think Game of Thrones about putting a sword in a man's hand and the beast inside stirring. Well what about when you put the beast in the skin, if you get what I'm saying there? Yeah, that, that just sticks with me a bit. Anyway, as Varamir's sixkin shuts his eyes and waits for death, he goes back to his very beginning, giving us the details of the story that he's hinted at a few times back at the beginning of the chapter. The tale of Bump and Lump, and the story of tale there never was. Yes, George believes we have not had our fill yet. A baby being eaten, memories of organised rape and the planned theft of a person's body are not enough. Now we need the story of a child killing another child out of jealousy. That is what we need, says George. And you are completely forgiven for needing to put this chapter down a few times already, but especially now, because it is heavy. So here we go. Lump was ill as a child. He was born too early, etc, etc. And that's a common theme with greenseers and dreamers like Bran and Jojen, and it seems like Euron as well. It is not a requirement for wargs, but perhaps it does explain why Varamir's gift grew so strong. Anyway, he was jealous of his younger brother getting all of Mummy's love, and especially of the fact that his younger brother was due to actually receive a name when Varamir wasn't. Well, names are important. They aren't that damn important, though. They're not important enough to murder your little brother. So six-year-old Varamir, giddy with his gift perhaps, killed his two-year-old brother. He tore him apart while walking with dogs. One or more, we don't know. And I don't really know what to say about that. It is unquestionably evil, even for a six-year-old. Back then, at least Varamir felt guilt at the time. He thought Bump watched him as the weirwood tree does now. And it all ended terribly anyway because the dogs that Varamir loved and used got the blame. They were killed by Vermeer's father. And if you are strong enough to sit there and discuss or listen to this part about Loptail the dog coming when called because he is such a good boy even though he knows what's about to happen with that axe, you are much stronger than I. I am skipping that part, let me tell you now. So that was Vermeer's first death at age six. That was when he began the hatred of his parents and his whole abandonment issue. That was how this monster was created when he killed a child. 
his brother as well. So there's lots of Kinslayer curse talk that we could do. And he got three innocent dogs killed for the trouble. It's been a pretty bad time for everyone ever since. So let's hurry to seeing this bastard finally end because you know first timers and rereaders are damn hungry for that eventuality now. So we crash back into the present with Thistle trying to wake the dying Varamir up because she wants to run away from the whites slash others. Let's just pause even in this high action bit here. Let's just pause to give Thistle some due here, shall we? Because we don't really get to know her, we don't see her very much, but she is awesome. She's not only hung around with this guy that she doesn't even know, caring for him, feeding him, keeping him alive, even as they run for their own lives and are exposed to the elements. And that's even though it seems pretty clear that Vramir won't last. She's doing that possibly for no reason, possibly even when he's guaranteed to die. And she's doing it when no one else is bothered, no one else is stuck around to keep him alive. She's alone. And that's just what she's done already. And that makes her damn amazing on its own. But now she's gone out looking for food for this guy and sees dead things coming towards her. Monsters that are fairy tales that obviously mean her own doom. And she still doesn't just run away. She actually goes back for this dying guy and risks her life to try and save him too. And remember, Thistle isn't some young egret type warrior. I believe anyway, she's not all that young. She's scrawny. She's definitely not strong. She's as hungry and as cold as Vramir is. And she still tries to save him. She is absolutely brilliant. No one would have blamed her for running for her life. But she didn't. She ran back and never knowing that she was running from one monster to another. This is how she's repaid for being such a good soul. Now, he thought, do it now or die. He summoned all the strength still in him, leapt out of his own skin and forced himself inside her. Thistle arched her back and screamed. Abomination! Was that her or him or Hagon? He never knew. Ramir doesn't think on how good Thistle is to have come back or even what she might be running away from. He just sees it as a chance for life and takes it because at the end of the day, he only cares for himself. He's alone here. He has always been alone, really. Even with this control and the gathering of animals, Vermeer has been alone since the day his brother died, and he knows it. That feeling is really amplified for him now. He's had this fake family brought to him of his power, and as soon as that broke, they just fled. They just ran away. None of them actually cared for him in the slightest, until Thistle came along, and look what he did to her. So now we have to suffer through the description of this attempted taking of Thistle, and it's, it's pretty damn vile. We've already had the sentence and forced himself inside her, as if that's not difficult enough to read for everybody. And I doubt I'm in any way qualified to talk about it, but I assume this part is particularly hard for sufferers of sexual abuse or sexual violence to read through. The sheer violation, the sheer evil of it all. Thistle just loses her mind, basically. This is how bad it is. It seems like it is the very worst thing that can happen to a person. The very worst feeling in the world to have someone suddenly enter your mind and try to steal your body and overpower your very soul. It's completely unimaginable how awful it must be like and it truly defies description. So how does George get across how terrible it is? He uses the physicality of it, this war for a human body, and it really is something else in terms of writing. I'm going to read it to you at length here. Get ready for a big quote. Get out! Get out! He heard her own mouth shouting. Her body staggered, fell and rose again. Her hands flailed. Her legs jerked this way and that in some grotesque dance as his spirit and her own fought for the flesh. She sucked down a mouthful of the frigid air and Vamir had half a heartbeat the glory and the taste of it and the strength of this young body before her teeth snapped together and filled his mouth with blood. She raised her hands to his face. He tried to push them down again, but the hands would not obey, and she was clawing at his eyes. Abomination, he remembered, drowning in blood and pain and madness. When he tried to scream, she spat their tongue out. <laughs> God. Thistle loses her mind, as I say. This feeling is so repulsive, corrosive, terrible, that her body will do anything 
to get rid of it, including biting out her own tongue or clawing out her own eyes. The Catalan comparisons write themselves, don't they, when she herself lost her mind. There's specifically a line a little bit later on about weeping red tears. That seems very, very Catalanish, doesn't it? And all through that quote I just read out to you, it's the his and hers. They keep changing because no one's sure whether it's his eyes or her mouth or whatever. This is a real battle for a person. But luckily, he fails. Thistle gets him out. If we can take any sort of comfort, that might be it. If not for the fact that it seems that her mind does not heal. This thing is so evil and so tainted that even after Vamir leaves her body, she is still tearing her clothes and body apart. Her eyes are already completely gone. But Vamir, he doesn't care. He completely detaches now as he watches the body and his gift zoom away. He himself goes first to the weirwood, then the forest animals, then the snow itself. His power is completely untethered for a moment. For a moment, he's everything. He even glimpses Bran and the others with cold hands. He sees Summer, and then he's with his wolves, and Vamir Sitskins dies for true. Welcome to Second Life. And actually, his death description matches very closely with the explanation that Bran receives from Leaf, I think it's Leaf, later in the book. So everything above the wall seems knit together here, maybe even stuff we don't yet know about. And he also, I want to point out that he does go into the Weirwood just for a second. I wonder if the other Starks, just Wargers compared to Bran's Weirwood powers, can also go into them even if it's just for a split second. So Vamir is now one eye, now and forever. But this slow transgression into Beast has not started yet. He is still very much Vamir with his memories and emotion. And in fairness, his first thought is of Thistle. He does feel some level of guilt, or again, possibly it's the shame thing for what he tried to do, but that's pretty fleeting. There's some quick connections we can get in here before the actual story itself goes to. In terms of wolves, more about Bloodraven and wolves, because one eye the wolf, well, that just sounds very similar to Brynna, doesn't it? And some of this did happen right in front of a weirwood, so it's easy access for Bloodraven to be watching this. Maybe Bran will watch it back later, we don't know. And there are mentions of Bloodraven and wolves before. It's rumoured in Duncan Egg, I think. And Bloodraven has Blackwood blood, don't forget. They, who apparently once, many, many long years ago, ruled the Wolfswood as Wargers. So you never know, maybe that is just an extra connection there for Bloodraven. But let's get back to what's actually happening, because there's something important to watch. Whites have flooded the village, and Thistle is coming back to life. Let's read the quote here. Pale pink icicles hung from her fingertips, ten long knives of frozen blood, and in the pits where her eyes had been, a pale blue light was flickering, lending her coarse features an eerie beauty they had never known in life. She sees me. What an ending. What an ending. So we firstly know Vamir's attempt to take Thistle did kill her. The descriptions of her fingernails, again, very, very reminiscent of Catelyn. The weirwood itself appears to be freezing. What the hell does that mean? We don't discuss that nearly enough. Does that kill them? Does it stop their ability? Can the others stop weirwoods? Or take them for their own uses? We don't know. We've been so concerned about people burning them, is it now also possible to freeze a weirwood to death? Surely not. I mean, they come from the north, you'd think not, but this seems to be a different type of freezing. Either way, we can suspect Bran and Brynden, like I said, are going to be watching this, so maybe they'll tell us. But most creepily of all, the whites see the wall. They smell life, and Vaimir believes that Thistle specifically sees him. Not one eye, not a wolf. Him, Vaimir. She knows he's in there. That seems like it might be of really high importance later on. Vamir has detailed to us that wargs can sense wargs. So is this white thing really just the most powerful warging trick ever? Is that why Thistle can see him? Does that highlight the Starks as in even more danger than we originally thought if they can be kind of located like that? There's lots to think about there, to be honest, but especially that idea of yeah, the whites just being this really powerful warging trick. Is there just one 
other doing all this is there a night king type figure i don't think so i like the idea of the others being kind of like a race of people but still they can it can still be a warging trick just coming from all of them can't it and the fact that Thistle saw him and remembered him, that connects these cold, these ice whites to the fire whites. So this might be important for John and maybe Stoneheart. And in fact, this whole idea of the ice seeing him reminds me specifically of both Merit and Brienne interacting with Stoneheart. Her eyes are really focused on. Her looking at these people as they die is really focused on. There's some other tiny notes we can fit in here right at the end. Uh, like the fact that Thistle remains whole and kicks Varamir out. And if Hodor remains while Bran takes him, does that mean there is something inside all of the whites, some terrified former human forced to watch their body be controlled by another, or is the fact that they died remove that? Again, questions just too big to, to even think about. There's the feeling of cold that Varamir got at his true moment of death. Uh, it links very heavily to John and what he feels at the end when the, he doesn't feel the fourth nice, does he? Only the cold, etc, etc. And what about Varamir slash One-Eye himself? Because like Chet, again, another similarity between these two prologue characters, we don't actually see the moment of their deaths something worse happens to them later on well chet we don't actually get to see it at all he just he dies and he becomes a white with Varamir, we kind of will see it because he's going to submit to summer and i completely forgot about that myself and you'll hear that even more than usual as we go further in dance so Varamir is now close to bran even closer to summer we kind of leave them just hanging about outside bran and blood raven's cave so you can make the argument that Varamir doesn't actually die that he's the only prologue character that escapes such a fate or are we accepting that by this point he's already pretty much gone and only one eye remains? Bran does kind of sense him, but how much of him remains? I don't know. Will this ever matter? Probably not, but still. And while we're talking about patterns again, like I say, this is the same thing. We've seen something big happen with the whites on each odd-numbered book in the prologue. Game of Thrones, Storm of Swords, now Dance of Dragons. So Winds of Winter, we already think it's going to be down in the Riverlands. So what does it mean for the last ever prologue what does it mean for spring something pretty big has got to happen for the others and it might be that's the downing of the wall that could easily be the final prologue many people would expect that to happen in, win in uh, winds of winter that's very viable as well so what else could it be oh, who knows there's any number of possibilities but it really does make you think it really does re-establish them in your mind as a coming threat dance is going to do that anyway as a, as a book in whole through john's chapters yes we should be taking note that they are gathering more people, more and more people. They're coming stronger. They're coming soon. There you go. So Endith, probably the darkest chapter in all the Song of Ice and Fire. And that is in a book with Fionn's torture and Tyrion's being a rapist and all these other things. This prologue is pretty far above the rest. So like we said, tone set, introduction done. Good job, George. We know what we're getting. Welcome to A Dance with Dragons. Tyrion 1. So here we go, that was a long old chat about Varamir, but we're here at the beginning of the book proper with Tyrion. And George comes out swinging because this is definitely the biggest cliffhanger from Storm that we have to resolve, like we talked about in the dance prepper. So remember, when we left Tyrion last time, we had never spent as much time with any other character after his 35 POVs through the first three books. And even with a book off, no one has come close to matching that mark. This is a major, major part of the series we've been missing. Tyrion is about as central as they come. So his return now 
is a really big deal. Yes, this is John and Danny's book, no argument there, but it's not as though Tyrion is a slouch. He still has 12 chapters, 12 important chapters. He's still second most in that regard. I don't want to repeat anything from that prepper episode. I definitely don't want to lecture at you because I think you know the deal with Dan's Tyrion, Dark Tyrion, many call him, and for good reason. This arc is an amazing exploration of what it's like to be at the bottom, what the after effect of that fall from grace is, as well as what picking yourself up, at least to a degree, looks like. But beyond that, what we'll see of Tyrion is very much like what we'll see of Jon and Danny, something new placed in the context of something old. For Jon and Danny, it's their rule, but Jon is back serving on the wall like in Game of Thrones, and Danny is back in her identity crisis like she was back in Game of Thrones. For Tyrion, we've been used to King's Landing in power Tyrion for so long now that it's a surprise to have him as we do in Dance, out on the road again like he was way back in the first book. That's not only the physical aspect of him travelling around instead of being stationary, but Tyrion will end up as out of power as one can be when he becomes a slave later in the book. Now okay, we had a glimpse of him as a prisoner in Storm, but really it's a call back to him being Catelyn's prisoner back in Game of Thrones. Yet, even with that link, this is a completely new world that Tyrion finds himself in, literally and figuratively. Tyrion is so core a character, he's so gravitational, that his moving to Essos is just mind-boggling to consider. You're moving a major piece on the Savas board over to somewhere new. His moving towards Daenerys, even more so. The potential joining of these two areas and these two plot threads is simply monumental. It's a huge mark of the series. And even if we rereaders know we never actually get there in this book, that promise lives strong throughout Tyrion's arc. And even without it, Tyrion still has a major effect on the world in this book, with its infamous Savas game as later dealings near Marine. Simply put, this is big stuff, so it's a good starting chapter. But back to this cliffhanger that we are resolving today. Danny and John made huge strides in the close of their storm arcs, and obviously people want to find out what was happening with them. But Tyrion owned the ending of that book, truly. He was the one to finally rid the world of the evil Tywin Lannister, improving it substantially. And all it cost him was the trust of his brother, who was the only truly loving relationship he's ever really had, the truth over a previous relationship and a lie that has tortured him ever since, and the soul-splitting of not only killing his father, but Shay as well. Tyrion became a monster so that he could take one down. That arc, that tumble from grace, especially in the last few chapters from Joffrey's death onwards, was one of the best stretches in all the Song of Ice and Fire, so everyone is hungry for Tyrion time. And to be honest, there's not a lot of build-up in this opening chapter before we see the crushing after-effects of that ending. Not just that single night in the Tower of the Hand, but the trial as well, the laughing and the betrayal of the people that he protected, everything with Cersei. We really can't overstate how dark that quick fall was, although we did give it a lot of attention at the time. And since then silence. We knew what John was going to be up to. Danny as well, to a degree. We both knew where they were, what they were going to be up to, we just didn't know the details. But Tyrion, we weren't even sure he got out of the building. We didn't know. He could have legitimately popped up in the Red Keep at any second. And the irony is, thanks to Cersei's POV and her obsession, Tyrion got way more attention than either John or Danny and Joe Feast. But in a way that only makes it worse because we still had no idea what he was doing and he didn't pop out the walls and we really wanted to know where he was, what was he doing, where was he going to go. We had vague ideas based on earlier talking storm about Marcella and Dawn or the wall, but I don't think it's a stretch to say that Tyrion was the most anticipated part of Dance with Dragons and the wait for it. And here it is, now we've got him. And in all, it's dark, deep, really dark awfulness, at least in the first half of his book. Tyrion will find some lighter relief later on, but as we've already seen with Jamie, the road is never straight. And actually, worth mentioning, it's pretty interesting how Tyrion and Jamie go down fairly opposite routes in terms of boosting themselves back up. Jamie tries to make himself a better person and end a war. Tyrion stays not so nice and incites a war, possibly. 
What we know is Tyrion isn't just going to wake up the person he once was. This is a changed man and it will be an uphill, difficult battle that we're really starting from the bottom of. Let's again give a quick nod to what he's just suffered through, even if it seems like ages ago to us. Like I mentioned, he had the fall from his trial, killing Tywin, Jamie's reveal, which is probably the most painful, Jamie's betrayal and that real that real slap in the face of Jamie being the one who's he's supposed to be able to trust. And as everyone seems to be in such a rush to forget, his killing of Shay. Now Tyrion will mention Shay plenty throughout the book, but nowhere near as much as he thinks about killing his father. That act plagues him, it corrodes him. Not because of guilt exactly, but because of what that killing represented. Tyrion always hated his father, but the thing that made him actually pull the trigger was the truth about Tysha. That is the real trauma, that's why Jaime is so linked in. That is the real trauma that affects him the most as we explored back at the time. That truth, the reveal of what life he could have had, makes his current mood at least make more sense even if we can't forgive his actions that we see here. And it's not enough to just have this change manifest in its soul. Tyrion has turned so dark, he is now actively sharing that hate and nihilism with the world as he becomes the monster that's always been promised. We've seen the build up all the way through, we've talked about it so much because again, like Varamyr, this has always been on the horizon. We knew we were going to wind up with Dark Tyrion, so a major part of Valoridus and Scraps and Scrolls and this reread project has been seeing how that's been built up, and now we're here. And it's quite the experience for us to go through as readers. We've had our complaints about Tyrion, definitely as rereaders, like I said, we've been able to see how and why he's got here but still in general we've always been on Tyrion's side and liked him as a person he's a very popular character again flawed but basically a good guy better than most I think you'd agree but now uh, well it's very clearly not the case he's a true evil monster and we have to move forward with that because George certainly wasted no time in getting the idea across luckily he also introduces this idea, this huge link-up of characters that would surely be our largest ever as a reason to stick with Tyrion and see how he's going to achieve that. He lays that on the board very early on. But prior to all that, to the meeting and the mission and Tyrion maybe lifting himself up a bit, we have to wade through alcohol, vomit, hatred and the interest of Tyrion in a new land. So let's get to it, shall we? Feast proper started with the new plots in Dawn and Ironborn chapters. Dance opts for the opposite and kicks us off with one of the biggest guns we have. Here is your opening line. He drank his way across the narrow sea. So George agrees. We've waited long enough. Give up the goose. Where is he going? Well, that's a pretty big hint. He's no longer in Westeros. He's across the narrow sea. So the shift of the story continues in an eastward direction, despite our earlier assumptions that everything would hopefully be moving westward pretty soon. Danny has always been here in the east, and we've just seen Aya come this way. Sam flirted with it for a second, and we know about Marwyn, Quentin, and Victorian also heading this way. Clearly all of those, except maybe Aya, pale in comparison to Tyrion taking the story there. He's one of the rocks we know we'll get plenty of chapters from, so this is obviously going to be a big part of the book, so it's good, it's important to get that message sent straight away in the first line. But clever George gives us a hint, while not depriving us of the guessing game that we always love so much. Where could he actually be going? Bravos certainly seems popular of late with I and Sam. Or could we be about to be introduced to Myrrh or Tyrosh or Lys that we always hear about but never get to see? Both of those options are mentioned a bunch in Feast, so they make sense. Or the clearer thinkers might cast their mind back and remember Varys is best chums with Ilio Mapatis, and it was Varys who got Tyrion out in the first place. For what reason? Who knows, but it's a great guess to link those two together. Well done if you did remember that. The other part of this first line is the drinking. We thought we saw Tyrion drink before. Ha ha ha, you have no idea what you're in for. 
And why does he want to drink? It's no longer the coping mechanism it's historically been. It's now a weapon he is using to destroy himself. This opening line, which is great to start the book proper, indicates the only thing Tyrion did across the narrow sea was drink. That's all he thinks is left to him. There's certainly no life to speak of. There's nothing else. So that's our first intro to the new dark world of Tyrion Lannister. It's literally dark. It is literally full of nothing but wine and vomit and shadows. And in those shadows, straight away, we get our first Tywin mention. His father was dead. He'd killed him. Again, not guilt, more obsession. Hatred for what was done to Tysha and Tyrion both. What we were establishing early on is that merely killing Tywin was not nearly enough of an expression of Tyrion's hatred. Death is just too good for Tywin. The first rational thought we get from Tyrion, if we want to ignore his basic teasing of the cabin boy, is his joining in the guessing game, because he also doesn't know where he's going. He reminds us that the wall was an option as well as Marcella, but both are likely scuppered by the death of men who might have once been called allies in Oberyn and Dior Mormont. He does eventually settle on Dawn being his preferred choice, you might want to see that as an early hint of Tyrion having a goal and assessed for life, but we quickly see, even though Marcella is there, he's already woefully past thinking of her as the niece that he loves, and instead as a weapon to hurt Cersei with. That, and it's merely the most convenient in terms of spoken language and weather, and not being killed by Janos Slint straight away. So, it's a shame that he only gets to drink on the boat, not steer it. While in this early establishing phase, let's set up another of Tyrion's key themes, his obsession over his father's final words. Not only the incorrect categorization of who Tysha was, but this open-ended thread that somewhere out there in the wide world is the only good thing that's ever happened to him. And he's just been let out into that wide world, so maybe, just maybe, ah, no, it's almost too much to hope for. But it's an incredibly intriguing plot thread we obsessed over enough just in Feast when Tyrion wasn't even present, so you know we're going to be doing it in Dance. Unfortunately, we don't get any resolution in Dance, and perhaps we won't ever. It would be quite fitting for Tyrion's story, I think, but it's definitely a fan favourite to think of. Certainly, it'll be a thought that occurs to him everywhere he goes on this grand trip, and he goes to a lot of places. It'll be his one tether to hope of any kind until a bit later on, and the possibility of him maybe one day finding an actual answer to this ever-present question, that's almost too much to consider for how much it would mean to him. Now, that line because I don't particularly want to repeat it. That line appears 11 times in this chapter alone, or some near variation of it at least, and about 22 in total for the book, so we're really getting that established early on. Here, as well as the early parts of this book, really sees Tyrion leaning into his final storm act of becoming a monster. He's really focusing on that straight away. There would be a certain amount of this, even if he had escaped without climbing that ladder up to Shay and Tywin. He still had the court baying for his blood and laughing at him because of Shay and that embarrassment of the trial. The picture painted of him by Cersei and what well, was a mock trial really, wasn't it? So he'd still have this idea of being what everyone wants him to be in this monster type thing. It's just been magnified like a thousand million times with what happened in the Tower of the Hand. It's important to remember Tyrion is also blaming himself for what happened to Tysha. He feels guilt as well as outrage at Tywin and Jaime. It doesn't excuse his actions in this or other chapters, but it does make you feel for him. And we discussed that a lot back in the day as well, back at the end of Storm. So we've got this little recap woven in at the beginning here. And that's even more important than usual, obviously. But I think Tyrion's storyline would be one of the harder ones to ignore, given how Cersei has obsessed over it for an entire book. We've been reminded again and again. But we also get specifics on Jamie's part in Tyrion's soul shredding. So we might need a reminder about that as well. It's just we need, we've had it so much from Cersei's point of view and others' point of view. We need it from Tyrion's just to really get that pain across. It's ironic that Cersei was always so concerned about Tyrion coming out of the walls for more revenge and actually gave him a lot of respect in thinking he's capable of such a thing, which might have been true in his previous days at King's Landing, but obviously here he's drunk, he's out of his mind, he wouldn't be capable of doing anything right now. 
It's while focusing on his father's final words, that ever-present phrase, that his memories take us back to when he first heard them. Memories he must replay a thousand times on this trip, and beyond, as we fill in the gaps that weren't given to us at the end of Storm. In this mini flashback scene, Tyrion is clearly completely removed from reality as he kind of stumbles out from the Tower of the Hand and travels for Varys out to the Blackwater, which is a poignant place for remembering how far he felt given that that falling started on the Blackwater as Tywin returned. And I love the exchange that Tyrion and Varys had before parting. Let me read it to you. I killed Shay too, he confessed to Varys. You knew what she was. I did, but I never knew what he was. Varys tittered. And now you do. There's wonderful mirroring in this. Tyrion's biggest problem with Shay is yes, he knew what she was, but ignored it completely and went on with their relationship. Yet with Tywin, he was forever announcing how terrible he was without having any idea how actually terrible he was. Realising the truth of both at once was catastrophic. And he also semi-tries to reason why he did it. He says Tywin is rising. It was kind of a him or me situation. Mm. Yeah, he can defend the action of self-defence, but clearly that's not quite the case, and we know that. We get a hint of what little life means to him in the offhand way he talks about killing Varys. So I could have just killed him as well. My soul is already corrupted. Why not one more? And he still can't even bear to think on Jamie specifically. It's better not to think of it at all, he says, despite Jamie obviously being a major factor in this whole thing. That block won't change too much throughout the book beyond thinking on blanket revenge against both Jamie and Cersei. Perhaps that stings the most for us given how much they meant to each other, the risk Jamie took for Tyrion, the potential for that relationship and a dual world of really messed up relationships for the both of them. They needed each other and they've gone their opposite ways. Here's another quote I want to read you quickly. And around about then, the darkness gulped him down. Well, yes, quite. That is very much descriptive of the beginning of this book. After suffering through some autumn storms, Tyrion really pays some penance when he actually comes to port. He has to go through this barrier of pain to escape into the new world, and it really does sound like an awful trip. The booze is enough, but Tyrion is soiling himself. He's cramped in a cask, which makes me think of poor Maester Aemon. He's bumped and bruised and cracked, and the whole thing sounds damn sickening. We really do start with Tyrion at his lowest. But then he's out, and a new part of his life begins, even if he doesn't quite see it that way. At first, I don't think anyone is guessing the identity of this fat man who opens the cask, but once the name Ilio Mepatis comes up, the mind really starts whirring for the first timer. Okay, here we go, we've got actual information. We can assume he's in Pentos, that's where Ilio is from, but what else do we remember? For such an important figure in the overall story, this is a character we've not seen since the very beginning of A Game of Thrones, aside from that quick glimpse that Aya gets. Even since then, we've only heard of him a couple of times, normally in terms of Danny guessing his far-off motives. As rereaders, we know he's been hugely influential over events both in the series and prior to the series, and at this point, we really remember that this is a secret schemer who has some connection to Varys. He had the whole Drogo Viserys thing, and most importantly, is heavily connected to Daenerys as well. We don't know the state of that relationship, because it's not really a relationship. Danny hasn't seen him since we did, and when he asked her to come to Pentos, she went to Slaver's Bay instead. So is he angry? Is he hopeful? That isn't important right at this second. The point is, he's connected to Daenerys and has a history of sending Westerosi assets to her. So our mind is whirring and stirring what that could mean, which is an important head fake from George in terms of what Ilio is actually going to send Tyrion to do in a second, or claim to. Obviously, none of this is known to Tyrion. His storyline and Danny's have been as opposite as you can get for two people as big in the mix as they are, and we had never expected them to link up, so there's no reason for him to be guessing at any of this. But while he's in his room recovering a bit, the Tyrion we do know surfaces just a tad. He starts off still thinking if he can regain some control over his life, but then his natural curiosity overcomes him, and we witness some of his classic wit and smarts come back as he cleverly deduces where he is. In this quick chat with Ilio that confirms his location, 
Tyrion begins by asking that question again. You know the one. There's no reason to it. He's not thinking it through. He just hears himself see it. It's a, it's a natural response for him because the question is already so ingrained in him. Obviously, to Illyro, along with pretty much every other character in this book, it means nothing. It's gobbledygook. So he answers straight up, which is a good mechanism to remind us that Illyro is not a good dude. He quibbles over the legalities of slavery by inching technicalities and using certain words. Oh, it's a servant, not a slave. Oh, all right, yeah, sure. Slavery is probably going to be more of a theme in this book than any other, which is saying something. So it's good we're starting off these types of conversations earlier about what is and isn't a slave, but Tyrion hits the nail on the head when he notes that it's all about profit. Illyro doesn't care about these servants slash slaves, or about Tyrion, or about Daenerys. He cares about what they can bring him. And at the moment, we still believe that to be for a financial reason. Certainly, that is what Tywin would assume, so Tyrion does the same here. Tyrion is smart enough to suspect Illyro, and we as readers should really join him lest we forget the original intent for Daenerys and the willingness to make her a slave by another name. We also get a quick reminder of the political landscape of Pentos and Illyro's part in it. His being a magister and this stuff about having a prince, we're going to be reminded of that in more detail later on, and it seems like there's enough setup for a future storyline to do with Pentos with the tattered prince and all that kind of stuff. But it's definitely one that's really hard to try and imagine. It just seems like we've got no room for it, so it's very hard to guess how that's all going to wind up. Tyrion, meanwhile, dwells on the awful details of Tysha's torment again. Because of course he's looking at an already horrible event in a new horrible light. It opens up the old wound and makes the hurt pour fresh. He also links this thinking on the guards that raped Tysha as tall men. Now we've seen him do that before. We've seen him focus on that particular physical uh, characteristic while he's with Shay and all the men who thought she might end up with. So it all links together. But most of all it results in further hatred for Tywin naturally. And it's these terrible thoughts that bring Tyrion down into his own well of darkness again as he starts talking to these two female cooks. That glimpse we saw of him working out that he was in Pentos is already gone, replaced by his cynicism of whatever Illyro is up to and his simple lack of care of consequences. What does it all matter when the worst has already happened? Why should he care? Hence these terrible, again nihilistic thoughts about what if he did just demand these cooks come to his bed? What if he were to force himself on them? If only this was the worst Tyrion gets. Unfortunately there are further depths for to plumb with him yet. Instead of women, he hunts for alcohol, his only other habit besides hateful thoughts. He's successful in that, and then he goes for a walk around this frankly huge manse. We really get an idea of how powerful Illyro might actually be. And it's while on this tour, Tyrion takes some time to share his hatred for Cersei and Jaime in the form of wish for heads on spikes. Okay, Cersei, that's fine. We expect and know that and it's pretty fair. But Jamie is much more harmful for us, like we said earlier. Most of us will at least be fonder of Jamie than we were before, but even if not, we have to mourn the relationship between these two brothers, the one that they had and do not any longer. I know I'm repeating there, but it's just so important. For both of them, it was completely unique in their lives and oh so valuable. So to see Tyrion thinking this way is just rubbish indeed, if again understandable. It's just painful. And there's the last alarms for us that hoping one day they will eventually connect and make up perhaps even over Cersei's death that would be nice but it just seems too much to hope for. While wandering around this manse and looking for other escape routes Tyrion notes the unsullied guards. He even thinks he might like some for himself. So that's not great that Tyrion is thinking maybe he'd want to get involved in slave ownership even if Illyro insists on calling him servants although it is ironic considering where Tyrion winds up. It could easily be foreshadowing that Daenerys will give him his own little legion sometime later on. I think we all expect Tyrion to experience the thrill of leadership again 
again at some point in the future. Leadership, though, not ownership, hopefully. Danny made similar observations of Ilios unstudied about a thousand years ago when she was there, and you may recall that Danny once had a discussion with Jorah about the differences in Ilios unstudied to her own, and why his had grown old and fat. Tyrion makes the same kind of note, although he's making the natural comparison to Varys. While getting more and more drunk, and trying to ply off his pain with witty slash cynical talk slash teasing of the washerwomen, or trying to choose this north or south decision, the truth, the bare, raw truth, actually sips out without any of his defence or the armour he once told Jon Snow about. She loved me. She was a crofter's daughter. She loved me and she wed me. She put her trust in me. And that's it in a nutshell, isn't it? That's the true hurt. We've got Tywin and Shay and Jamie and Cersei, but it doesn't matter half as much as what happened to Tysha. That is the real stuff. Somebody actually genuinely loved Tyrion. That's all he ever wanted. We've discussed it ad nauseum. And it was taken away from him. Worst of all, he didn't even know that it was taken away from him. He didn't even... He didn't know it existed. But again, we've talked about that a lot. So it's no coincidence that this rawest of hurts comes at the same time that Tyrion picks seven mushrooms that could kill him. So another good way to keep up the tension from George as well. After passing out from a bit too much alcohol, he's woken up later by one of these slaves that is not a slave. And we can see the difference that names or titles can make to the people themselves when Tyrion again asks his famous question. Interestingly, the girl says that she was brought to please the king. Now, I, I might be wrong in this, but there might be something flying over my head. But which king is she referring to there? There's no king of Pentos, am I right? It's just the prince. So I wonder if this is someone that Ilio has been saving for young Griff, or maybe she was supposed to be a gift for Joffrey. And the emphasis is on her speaking the common tongue, so I don't know. And correct me on that if it's something obvious that I'm not seeing, but, well, Ilio does speak in past tense of a king, so maybe it is just the king of Pentos. He says that later on but I don't know, give me your thoughts on that one. But more to the point, this conversation with Tyrion and this uh, blonde bed warmer here, or blonde servant, whatever you want to call her, well, if we haven't got Tyrion the monster yet, we sure do now. The conversation with this blonde girl starts with him thinking on Shay, nearly resulting in the best outcome for both him and the blonde girl. Tyrion doesn't want her, and clearly isn't in any sort of mindset to be thinking of anyone in that nature, and she doesn't want him. And it's nearly left there. Incidentally, reading the resignation of which this woman has that she would just have to do something she really does not want to do makes for very uncomfortable reading truly but it all goes wrong thanks to Tyrion's fresh wounds of ego finally realizing the reality of his relationship with Shay, combined with the truth about Tysha, makes him feel he has to respond when he sees that this girl is happy that she doesn't have to sleep with him he feels like he has to make her pay for it for some reason so he helps to try and make her as uncomfortable as possible or if we're being honest as scared as possible unfortunately being threatened with being used as a sexual toy apparently is nothing new to this girl which again very uncomfortable just sad reading that so Tyrion adds that extra layer of possibly strangling and killing her because she is worthless and he is not and that hits the mark is a horrible passage, one made of pure cruelty and sociopathic behaviour. Tyrion enjoys this, despite the fact he's bringing up his own hurt with Shay's death. For now, this is how he deals with it, trying to turn it either into a joke or a weapon. Better to point the blade outward rather than in. He wants to matter to this blonde girl. He wants her to be afraid of him again as a show that he is important. And it's one of the most disgusting things that Tyrion has done yet. Basically, what he is here is a more intelligent Joffrey, ruled by manic ego and, and a desire to control emotion through evil. We've loved Tyrion for a long time we have to put aside our fan hats of him here it's beyond repugnant and again if only this was the last time but George is telling us exactly what to expect I suppose another reason he strikes out with the blonde girl no less forgivably is because she is offering what he is supposed to want 
with no desire from her end at all. Just like Shay, it turns out. Just like Sansa, to a degree. He was forever frustrated with her platitudes and manners and saying what she was supposed to say rather than what she wanted to say. It's frustrated Tyrion all of his life and probably contributes more, about, more to this thing he has about everyone always lying to him. It's not the kind of thing he wants to be thinking on just now, but we can explain it away as much as we want. Bottom line is, it's awful. It's just terrible. It's Tyrion and ego and wanting to control and ugh, just terrible, just terrible. Later on, because we do leave that scene, thankfully, while dining with Ilio, Tyrion should probably be relishing all this endless food and wine and the comforts of a huge mansion because he sure won't be seeing much of it going forward. It's interesting because we first really met Tyrion when he was out in the wild of the Vale of the Green Fork, but since then he's been in comfort ever since. For all his other problems, he's had it better than the 99%, and this is the last hurrah for that before his river sailing, sea sailing, and life as a slave. All of it amounts to a loss of the great armour he's worn all of his life, the kind most can't even imagine in his name and his gold. He's been without that, like, once in his whole life before this, again, back in the Vale with the Mountain Clans. That was in the wild where he wouldn't expect to have to use it. Now he's in a society, and people don't know or care about him. He craves that again in some ways, but actually he will head the other way. It's a learning curve for him to operate in a society in such a different role, which is only focused on or highlighted more when he gets to meet Penny. So Ilio updates Tyrion about the fall of Slaver's Bay, which makes an excellent point that needs to be established early. All of Essos is connected. The collapse of slave trade, thanks to Danny, has knock-on effects everywhere. We're going to see Danny have to deal with this soon enough, and Tyrion will see plenty himself. So it's a very well-made point. Much as it might have seemed in the past that Danny was just removed from the rest of the world, she no longer is. The mushrooms return now as Illyrio plays this little game to promote a point. Firstly, that Tyrion needs to not drink himself to death and doesn't want to, if he's honest, and that all of his other options have deserted him. Clearly, he is already setting up his final point a bit later on and is nudging Tyrion towards that now. Tyrion has this to say, and you had best be careful what you say of my family, Magister. Kinslay or no, I am a lion still. So he still falls back on the old I'm still a lion line because... What else is there? That's what we've just been saying. What else has he ever known? He's always been tied to the reputation of the rock and the gold that comes with it. So again, we look at this grand change of someone who can't just rely on that backup anymore. Try as he might at certain times. But he also says he wants to claim Jamie and Cersei for himself. He wants the Cassidy rock because he feels he is owed what Tywin denied. And to be fair, if everyone had played by the rules originally, it would already be his. So it's interesting. But Ilio does a good job of ending Tyrion's prospects of North and South. Evidently, he shares Varys' use of spies in plain sight by those he's used in his own house. He directly points out that crowning Marcella would kill her, and more to the point, Tyrion knew that. He just wanted to hurt Cersei and was willing to sacrifice Marcella to do it. At least he's smart enough to recognise that now, that it would just be playing with Marcella's life, using it as nothing more than a game piece, as he's already done with her and Tommen to a degree in the past. Unfortunately, it's a far stretch from his earlier relationship with them, something we really celebrated at the time. But Illyria is also dead on, because we've already seen her have a crowning attempt and nearly died from it, so he is right. He's also setting up this idea of Dawn on its own not being enough, and that tracks with the end of Feast and what we know of Quentin's quest. But also that Ilio slash Varys might have had ideas for Ariane and Dawn in the past, and maybe new plans for them now with a young Aegon, or young Griff. Phaegon, whatever you want to call him. Another part of this uh, conversation I find interesting is Illyrio talking about the famine for Westeros that's coming. Because you know how much I enjoy that talk. It's going to be such a big factor. Jamie's been talking about it. We get it here. We get it in Sansa's Winds chapter. Really, is going to affect everything. And in fairness, I'd never really considered the possibility of resupply coming from Essos, but you've got to think the narrow sea is going to be even worse than it is now. And even if they do get across, where are they delivering? The Vale? Peter Baelish is keeping it all. King's Landing? They're probably going to be a bit busy with invasion stuff. Whatever happens, I doubt that Riverlanders 
or others as well, will ever see any associated food. And why is Elio talking about famine and possible disaster? Because he's already building up that saviour talk for George to set up some more of Fagan. Fagan again. I don't know what we're going to call him. Coming and looking perfect. But for readers new and old, we can all assume it's probably going to wind up being Danny actually saving the day. But Elio continues with his persuasion technique. They both label Tyrion's desire as Cassidy Rock, even though they both know he wants more. But Elio's point is that there's only one path to get it, and it's not in the direction of Westeros. Instead, in a very close comparison to the speech we get in the final chapter of the book, Ilio introduces a new option, a Targaryen. Let me read it to you here. A saviour come from across the sea to bind up the wounds of bleeding Westeros. Fine words, Tyrion was unimpressed. Words of wind. Who is this bloody saviour? A dragon. The cheesemonger saw the look on his face at that and laughed. A dragon with three heads. It's a brilliant little bit of writing because it obviously excites the hell out of us. Tyrion might go to Daenerys. We might get this huge clash of two of our biggest characters. Can you imagine what she would do for him and he for her? This is huge. Plus, it really pushes what we we're all hoping for in this book. Danny coming west. That's the idea here. Other people already further west are already prepping for it. So it must surely be happening, right? She must be coming if they're going to be doing all this stuff. And that's all great. But the best part of it is that a first timer will obviously assume that this is about Danny because that's our prejudice stuff to the previous books of course it is it's only later we realize that he's actually probably talking about fagan or young griff or at least the both of them together as the original plan told but fagan is very much the point of it for Ilio, even if he doesn't say that now and he presents it as daenerys here and later we know what he's really likely thinking so we get the setup of probably the biggest dance only storyline right here in chapter one this dance of these two dragons. But is he expecting there to be a third head? Or did they just originally plan for free total with Viserys, Danny, and then Aegon coming later? I doubt that. And to be honest, I doubt he means much by the free-headed thing at all. He's just said that people make too much of a fuss of banners and sigils. So maybe he's saying that Aegon is going to be coming with three literal dragons, having made the point that Westerosi makes symbols out of things they don't even own. Again, that was part of the original plan, a very important part. So George is setting up some good links between the first proper chapter and the final actual chapter in Kevin's prologue that we mentioned. On both ends of the book, we get one half of the Varys Elio partnership singing the praises of young Griff slash Aegon. In world, they are persuading the characters of Fagan's worth, but as readers, we can apply a lot of the same reasoning to Daenerys and figure that while Fagan, Aegon, will come, Danny also definitely will, hopefully, and will make a bigger splash. At the same time, I really wonder if Danny will be viewed as a saviour. Will she actually be one? I'm convinced that she will, but to be seen as one seems a little too clean and fair for what she typically has to put up with. I'm not going to dive into that. I spoke about that a lot in other places, so we'll save that for another day. But yeah, that's got me worried. I just maintain that her and John are going to have aspects of villainy painted into their story, whether fair or unfair, and just not be appreciated for what they actually do for humanity, because it just seems that, that way, doesn't it? So we've got our new road chosen, we've got our minds blown, it's a good start to the book proper, and we get some good old chapter sequencing because we've just brought up Daenerys, being presented as Daenerys, and that's who we're going to visit next in her chapter. So right back on that, clever chapter sequencing uh, road. And just to finish here, last point, there's some comparison to Ariane's Princess in the Tower chapter, her last chapter in Feast, in terms of how this book ends, and finding out that the true end goal is actually a dragon that they need to travel to. That's so interesting, if way more dark for Tyrion personally. And that is Tyrion 1. Let's keep with that side sweep, that hint from Tyrion, and move on to Daenerys. So we are continuing with this big gun theme. Who do we want to see the most? George knows, George delivers. No, Danny's arc wasn't left on so much of a cliffhanger as Tyrion in terms of we didn't know what was going to happen, but it was still an area of major interest. 
So we're back in Marine. Hurrah! Uh, not really. None of us like Marine, do we? When we last saw Daenerys, she was on top of one of the most magnificent arcs in the series with her amazing conquest of Slaver's Bay. Now, in Dance, we're pretty much going to see the complete opposite. It's the difficulties of rule compared to the glory of conquering. And there's even more similarities with Jon that we've already spoken about multiple times in that prepper episode, so I won't go over them too much, but they are going to pop up here. Generally, it's going to be a frustrating time for us as we go for Danny here. She will wage an internal war, even as the external one is all but decided for her because of her desire to save as many lives as possible. That is the ultimate conflict for her. We'll have difficult Marinese, ungrateful freedmen, kickbacks from Astapor and Yunkai, even Calf raises its head again. We'll see her used by those Marinese and trussed up with those famous rabbit ears. We'll see a profoundly unhappy Daenerys. Yes, sorry to be the bearer of bad news. We're glad to see Daenerys back, but it's not the Daenerys we would have chosen. It really does generally hurt us, especially after all that success she had in Storm. We'll get indignant at how his Darzo the Rack and the others view her, treat her, use her. The whole thing is this big tangled mess boiling higher and higher throughout the book until we finish with an even bigger break than we've seen before with Daenerys and perhaps more importantly, she rides a dragon just to round up the entire heart for you there. It's hard not to just skip ahead to that part because it's a pretty huge step or flap or whatever you want to call it. Before that, we'll have about a billion factors to learn about and consider in Danny's chapters. The mysteries of Quaif, the mysteries of killers, opponents on pretty much every compass point, opponents right under your feet, disease, hunger, the betrayal of cell swords, the lessons of Sir Barry, marriage proposals left, right and centre, and she hasn't even heard most of them yet. But the core, as always, is her weighing and learning of how to be a dragon, with her eventual big decision I just mentioned, and in the huge swing in destiny that it comes with. Now that's a proper cliffhanger, isn't it? As we established Tyrion's big themes, now we established Danny's, And a lot of it is marine stuff, but the most important is that big dragon question, whether to lead with fire or with floppy ears instead. And this really tough time of learning that ruling is not the same as conquering. Obviously, it's going to be incredible, valuable experience whenever she does come to Westeros, even if I didn't personally think she's going to get much of a chance to rule there, it's still worth something. It's still an important part of her personality. We're dragging up things that have never really been resolved. We're adding new factors in. It's the classic Danny conundrum, which we'll discuss as we go through this chapter. What we set up is Danny not being in a great way. She could use some help, maybe like Tyrion, who happens to be coming towards her. But I look forward to eventually seeing Daenerys prove she doesn't actually need rescuing from any of these people that are racing towards Marine and to her. Advice, sure, but rescue. No. I look forward to a Winds of Winter with Danny in charge, finally, after all this book of frustration and not being able to do what she wants. But we'll have to earn that. Before that, before even this whole arc of the book, we have this first opening chapter, which is actually quite a slow one in terms of plot progression. Nothing happens too much here. Nothing is really decided upon. It's more just the presentation of problems. We need to update the people, the readers, what it is actually like in Marine. Because, as I say last time, it was conquer this place, conquer that place, level up, level up, level up. Big Boss destroyed that as well. Danny's riding high. Yeah, she has issues of jaw and stuff like that, but basically, pretty good book. Now, not so much. That's what we're going to explore here. So we'll have those problems given to us. We'll see some early Danny solutions that aren't going to work. And really, we're just getting into Danny's mindset before a devastating reveal at the end of the chapter that will continue the Varamir thread of bad things happening in this book, mainly the death of children, that makes all other decisions seem so unimportant and leads to her biggest personal policy change of the book. Let's begin, as always, with the opening line of Dance Daenerys. She could hear the dead man coming up the steps. 
So again, another single line to kick off a new arc. Another one with something inherently negative to set the tone as with Varamir. This one is about a dead man coming towards her, so I think we can tell where the negative connotation is coming there. For someone whose whole focus is the preservation of life, it's a pretty damning start. But it shows what the book will be like, but what the chapter focuses as well. We're going to start off in the micro view, but the arc is a macro of the same problem. Enemies everywhere, death unavoidable. So the obvious tension setting and the mystery setting here is who has died? Who is this dead man? And all we really get at the beginning is that it's an ally. Danny says he died for me. So we know it's someone on her team. We want to know who. But before we get there, let's just note that Daenerys, she's waking from dreams. They're going to be pretty important for her in this book, as they are in all others. She's been dreaming of a red door. We're going to get more of that throughout this book. And actually, there's some early Dothraki vibes. We get a little bit of focus on Eri and Jukri here right at the beginning, before we even really establish who has died and what the big problem is. That vibe continues with the lion pelt making a reappearance, that one that she was given from Drogo, which of course inspires memories of the man himself. Like I say, Eri and Jukri are also being given some early lines about Dothraki's suspicions about touching the dead. Now Danny casts them off, but she'll have some of the same identity crisis she once had before dragon versus Dothraki. What is she? Except now there's a real queen in the mix as well. Given that we'll end up very much in the Dothraki camp physically at the end of the book and the dragon camp emotionally, there's some great mixing to be done. There's really classic foreshadowing there to remind us of the Dothraki stuff here right at the beginning when we're going to make that ending later on. And while we're here, I might as well mention, they say it's bad luck to touch the dead. Well, that might also just be some solid advice for later on considering the pale mare is on its way, yet more foreshadowing very, very early on. So now we move on to the focus of this early part of the chapter. Who has died is a member of the Unsullied. That's the teammate that Danny's lost. And what this is, is an early establishment of the major problem of the beginning of the arc in the Sons of the Harpy. That which Danny thought she had pulled down in Storm. Well, it's one of the problems. There's many, many more. But this one will be a constant issue akin to John's Wildlings or the others Take Your Pick that will build and build and piss off further and further as the book goes, that boiling analogy we made earlier. Problems will come outside the walls later as well, lots of them, but they wouldn't be half so bad an issue if Danny could fix the inside problem that we're establishing here. This is what will push her into marriage and a dozen other decisions that she doesn't like and eventually onto Drogon's back because she can't fix this initial problem. It's easy to face a sea on the horizon if we're casting our mind back to Storm again. It got harder and harder as Danny progressed, the levels kept getting bigger and bigger, but the path was always clear. Here I am, the good guy. Here's all my good guy teammates. Over there, on the horizon, behind the walls, all the bad guys. Simple. But now she's in the walls. She doesn't know what team people are on. And her enemies don't do her the kindness of standing on the horizon and staring at her anymore. They come in ones and twos out of the night, disappearing before she can apply any of that brilliant strategic mind she showed off so much last time round. Having to suspect her own teammates isn't something she's really had to deal with before. And obviously we're going to explore that a lot as we go. And obviously that having to suspect people around you, well, that hurts doubly, that is weighing doubly on her because of Jorah Mormont's recent actions. But we'll come back to him later. For now, let's focus on this actual man who's died. Let's have another quote. Even those who lack a man's parts may still have a man's heart, your grace. I mention that because that's some good sequencing, considering that Tyrion thinks about Ilio's eunuchs and what they are like personally. And we're also going to find out at the end of this book that this statement is completely true of Varys as well. As much as he's claimed neutrality throughout, it turns out he really does have an emotional investment in all of this goings on in the world. So the shadow of Tyrion and Ilio and Varys as well lingers over all Danny chapters now that we know yet another person is on the way, at least until we figure out what Ilio actually meant. Back to the Harpies, because they likely believe themselves 
benevolent, fighting back against an evil oppressor come out of nowhere. We see how horrible they've been to Stalwart Shield, that's our uh, Unsullied who's died here, how they came six and one and dishonoured him after death. We generally quite like the Unsullied, knowing what they've been through, so it's rough to see and read about. But again, the Harpies likely think they're just merely paying back their end of the bargain for Danny's murder of the Masters and the sacking of the city, and around and around goes the vengeance and bile. It's the lesson we've learned from Feast for Crows, isn't it? So right from the get-go, we're getting this mindset, we're getting this atmosphere of, this is just sad, Danny is upset, Danny is not happy, because these are bad things that are happening, these are her people being murdered for her, because of her basically. And it's also the next step up, she mentions this is the first actual soldier that they've killed, the first Unsullied, and Barry, he warns, yes, first but not the last, which gives us this quote, I am still at war, Danny realised, only now I am fighting shadows. Well, that is very, very true. Later on in this chapter, the shadows will be down in the city that she's looking upon at dusk from her high pyramid. And that's the part she can't control, the resistance of the city itself. At the chapter's end, Drogon is described as a wing shadow. So we get both of those things that her soul is fighting for. And we discussed this, this continuation of war previously back at the end of Storm, that this just never stops for Daenerys all the way through this book. It's really the same thing. There's no rest of her. It's just way, way, way more difficult, way, way, way more complex. It's a different war, sure, and it's something new for George to explore as well, how dangerous occupation can be for both sides. Some risks just cannot be healed and probably shouldn't be attempted at. But the alternative is bloody slaughter. Okay, she could just destroy everything, she could just kill everyone, but how can she ever be alright with such a choice? That's not what she's about. And it's not just that, it's that, like I say, there's bad on both sides. It would be easy if enemies were over there, good people were over there, and she knew which ones to attack, but it's not. There's bad on both sides people she's released and freed and well, we'll get into it that's how complex it is for her though she's in mourning already and upset danny is still ruling she has a smart head on she's going to make some decisions and she's very smart in her reaction to starwalk shield's death she's sending men off to do some investigating etc she offers gold first instead of just saying right grab everyone talk to them let's find out what we can find she'd be a very good detective her sharp mind has gone nowhere while we've been at feast so that's good and she doubles the guard as well those are good measures that may well have yielded results if the deck weren't so stacked against her. Unfortunately, as rereaders, we know just how bad the stacking actually is, and that this problem is going to get far worse than this, with no success of the kind that Danny really wants. It's just the beginning of the frustrations that seem just unfair to both Danny and us. This isn't fair, this isn't deserved, but it's going to happen. Now, I say she's offered gold instead of blades. That's her information, but as for the actual killers who've done this to her poor and so, she has this to say find them so i might teach the harpy sons what it means to wake the dragon now we all remember this quote the wake the dragon quote from it being used over and over again by Viserys. it was the phrase that built into her thinking of him that level of control and abuse that related to his anger and other terrible qualities he had it was so related to him in her mind it was also the phrase that was repeated over and over and over again in her fever dreams just before the dragons were born. So that links obviously very, very strongly back to all that decision-making on who she was that she experienced in Game of Thrones. Interestingly, this was a surprise to me, this is the very first time this phrase has been repeated since Game of Thrones. I would have guessed Danny would have been obsessed with it throughout Clash and Storm as well, but clearly not. This is the first, and it's definitely the first time that Danny has used it herself. So that's a great sign of things to come in this book. The deliberation over what kind of dragon she will be. There's her trying to keep the danger of her dragons and her own temper in check, and how she'll slowly let some of that out as she becomes more and more frustrated and already has with the masters. Just to double down on that point, only appears once more in her final chapter, back in a fever dream and back with visions of Viserys, just as she basically chooses the path of the dragon to end dance. So the phrase makes a really great bookend for her arc. 
Is she saying it now in this moment because she's enraged like Viserys would have been or because she thinks that is what she's supposed to say? Remember, she's got zero examples of how to rule, never mind having to rule as a Targaryen with that kind of firepower behind you. She's finding all this out as she goes along. That's why this book is so important for establishment of who she can be as a queen. And I remind you what we mentioned in that Tyrion chapter about how this links back to how this mirrors that decision making from Game of Thrones really is a continuation of that. So Gil is already playing in. She wanted to give these unsullied a good life, but Starwalt Shield and soon many others will die in her service trying to protect her, following her orders. It's unimaginably tough for anyone to deal with. I really can't emphasize that enough, how bad she feels about that. Again, this is a similar problem that John's going to have, sending men out to their deaths. It's part of the job requirement, I guess. But that doesn't make it any easier. Hence why she's thinking, okay, how do I react to this? I want to react badly. I want to let the dragon out because it's my fault that these people have died. <laughs> tough. Now, using the Unsullied as detectives is a good sign of the many corners Danny is pushed into during her rule. She knows it's not a great idea. Barry backs her up on that fact, but there's nothing else to do for it other than not have patrols, and that's obviously not going to work, is it? This will also remain a problem throughout, mainly because Danny built an army, not an occupying force. Remember, staying and ruling Marine was never part of the plan, and she's going to be revisiting how smart that choice was a lot. But the same approach will also be repeated. Danny knows she's not making a good option, but being forced into it anyway, because there's no alternatives. We can apply that to a lot of the decisions that we'll see in this book. We do get a quick mention, a quick setup of Sir Barry's training school, which will likely play a big part in the upcoming Battle of the Marine, even if they, or maybe he, don't last too much longer afterwards. So as Danny is thinking about how the Unsullied are not suited for certain types of work, she gives us a little bit of a review, a little bit of a reminder of who is still in her camp. What's her other options? And mainly what we actually get from this is that a lot of her previous allies are gone at the moment. Brown Ben Plum has gone, and we know how costly that will be, or maybe won't be, you can really tell. And Danny is also away from her Blood Riders, which is very, very unusual for her. And again, similar to John, who also has to send away his closest and oldest friends. But speaking of allies and swords, what we really get out of this little paragraph is our first mention of Darrow Naharis in this book. Another ally who's going to go up a few tiers in terms of importance to Danny. He'll be her focus for a lot of this book. The one release that she does finally enjoy and yet will have to give up for what she believes is the greater good and for duty. There's some controversy in that, both in-world and out, that we'll come to cover later. And Dario, he might not be the one you really want to be trusting if you've got your smart hat on, but Danny has to wear a lot of very heavy hats throughout this book, and her arc in general, so we really shouldn't blame her for wanting to wear a hat of passion just once, for doing something she actually wants to that makes her happy, and, spoiler alert, lots of people her age get up to. We can't really judge for that. As for his intentions, well, again, we'll come back to those later, but even now, we can see he's a bit separate from the pack in Danny's mind. He's something special, and he's also currently away looking for more allies. So Danny has something to long for straight away. Even if she won't admit that's what she's thinking right now, not quite yet, it will come later. So that's really the end of the first act of this chapter. This unfortunate death that really does just set the mood. And before we move into the real second act, we get this little kind of interlude of Danny reviewing her city from her supposed position of power high up on her balcony, which we did actually see her at in the end of Storm. And she's well aware that she's actually looking out on a bunch of enemies, wherever they may be hiding, like we said, in the shadows. It turns out her dragons share her mood as she focuses on Viserion and Rhaegal a bit here. Viserion's eyes are described as pools of molten gold. Come on, Danny, that's a bit harsh. You know who you named it for. It's too soon. But it's just rejigging Viserys in our memory a little bit. Now, we do get a little bit on Rhaegal and Eri here. Viserion, he's had a bit of a bad time of it. He's a bit annoyed. 
Regal as well. He's even snapping at Eerie, who he's obviously very well accustomed to. He knows he's known his whole life. So it's a nice little hint of frustrating times coming for this pair of dragons as well. Regal, like I say, has, especially has a rough time of it. Later on, he'll burn six men during his imprisonment before killing Quentin right at the end. So some nice foreshadowing there that he's just a bit pissed off. Perhaps that's because they are mirroring Danny's inner rage already. Okay, it's low now, although not too low. But it's going to bubble and bubble. Same for the dragons. Drogon is also described as specifically snapping at Danny when they are reunited in the wild. So here she is already thinking of them as another issue to add to the list. The dragons are arguing, they're fighting. Danny simultaneously thinks she hasn't spent enough time with them, yet pushes them away from her later on at the end of the chapter. And you have to think that imprisonment that we know is coming and upsets us so much has a lasting effect on their nature down the road. It's obviously not going to make them happy, is it? It's definitely not a positive for them. So we can make easy comparisons between the dragon's frustrations and Danny's. And just to put a cherry on top, we have the foreshadowing of them finally being large enough to fly away. And just to double down that point, Danny gives us this quote. Then she would fly, as Aegon the Conqueror had flown, up and up until Marine was so small that she could blot it out with her thumb. So if she's wanting to leave already, it's really showing she's not prepared for what's coming this way. If she wants to leave at this point, it's going to get far worse. Already she's regretting that decision to stay and rule, or more specifically, regretting she was in a position where she felt she had no better options in regards to saving her people. That's why she stayed. We all know the feeling of picking something and instantly wanting the other option even more than we did before, and John's going to do some of this same thinking in his first chapter about that Winterfell decision. And again, more obvious foreshadowing. George is not going to be too subtle in this book. He needs to get it across. So I mentioned that as basically being a little interlude before the next part of the chapter. I think that's true because we've focused on the dragons, which we know, which we know is very Danny-like. We like talking about that. Now we're going to have a great big part focusing on the Miranese stuff, the Queen stuff, the Tokar stuff, the floppy ears. All the bad stuff's now going to be just dumped down on Danny and us to really get the mindset across again. Let's start with this tow car as we get a description of Danny having to dress. Even the damn clothes are annoying here. This tow car is another trip in having to be delicate and slow and think everything out and bow down to Miranese tradition and wants instead of what she prefers. Sure, it's just one thing to concede. Who cares? It's just a fancy dress, right? But it will frustrate now and throughout and it's just another layer to weigh Danny down throughout the book. It's another version of the floppy ears and the feeling that this is not at all a good fit, especially when it is a symbol heavily connected with what she has fought to oppose. This is the master's clothes, it's a slaver's clothes. She doesn't want to be associated with that, but she feels she has no choice. Much later on in the book, she's going to have to deal with some of her freedmen and slaves elsewhere, accusing her of selling out and getting rid of her original morals, and stuff like dressing in a tow car only helps to that. We're going to see it in Tyrion's slave camps much, much later on. While we're here, let's talk about the floppy ears thing in general. I remember it used to bypass me early on, I never knew what she really meant by that. I struggled to see why it became another mantra. But I think the main part of it is that Danny starts off with this confidence and steadfastness against these things that she does not want to do, but the Miranese and others are just relentless in their chipping away over and over, so she just has to bend eventually, bit by bit, and really does give in on a lot of what is said here in the first chapter. And worst of all is she's aware she's giving in on all these things, but there's no way to try and save people without it. She's just backed up against a wall, she's in a corner. It's all very much like bailing out a boat already full of water. And it's an uphill battle the entire book. There's tedium, frustration, it's just going to drag so much. It is a drag to don the bunny ears. 
put on the stupid dress, go through what she feels are stupid traditions and requirements. The feeling plays off against itself throughout the book, hence why it is set up here. Who wants to do this? No, no one, of course they don't. They don't want to hear the boring ceremonies and all the constant asking her to do stuff for a city she doesn't care for, when she could just ditch it all and ride some dragons. It could have been like in Storm with the power and conquest, everyone riding together, common goals, making plans, freeing slaves. That was just cooler, wasn't it? That was just fun. But these are the consequences. Now she has to look after those she's freed. Now she has to be the Misa that she became and has to act like it. The two sides are going to pull and pull at her no different to what happens to Tommen between Marjorie and Cersei. And I haven't even mentioned actually that the scene we're getting all this information from is when Daenerys is sitting with the Green Grace, Galaza Galare. And well, she's an excellent representation of is she an ally? Is she an enemy? Who knows? We just know that she's annoying for Danny at the moment. And you'll notice how Galaza is saying Danny needs to do this or she will be considered an outsider in terms of the, of the dress, I mean. Yet funnily enough, even with all these things that Danny does acquiesce to, she's still always an outsider. She's always considered an outsider when it comes to the next thing. Oh, now you've got to do this if you want to be accepted. Oh yeah, but that's not enough. Now you've got to do this. And eventually it's just going to build up and up until we get her having to marry his Darzotharak. It's interesting how much Danny does try to fit in with Myrony's custom. We know why. It's because she wants to save as many lives as possible. That is always the bottom line. Okay, I've got a dress. I've got to walk like this. I've got to say that. I have to marry him to save people. That is it. That's how good Daenerys is. But it's interesting to look at the difference with someone like Stannis, who, when he comes to a new place, he kicks the door in, he pushes his um, his agenda, he pushes R'hllor on everyone. I look back to Aegon I and how expert he must have been to keep that kind of balance of merging with a new society and a new culture, but yet not just bowing down to everything. And we know all this from Fire and Blood and the world of Ice and Fire, but we know how you know how you merge with the Baratheons and the Durandans by keeping arms and keeping names and all this stuff. We've seen it all around Westeros, but it's very interesting to think about and compare to Danny here. Now, in this scene with Galaza, we get another really, really key quote. Let me read it to you. A crown should not sit easy on the head. One of her royal forebears had said that once. Some Aegon, but which one? Now, I don't think Fire and Blood does give us the answer, but you'd think it was Aegon the First, given his design of the Iron Throne being something not to sit easy on. And it's a theme we've seen often already through the series. Catelyn was always worried about the weight on Rob's head. We'll see plenty of this feeling from Jon and Daenerys in this book, which I feel like I might as well just kind of, I might record that and just insert it everywhere, because I'm going to say that pretty much every Jon and Daenerys chapter, I think. Danny herself has already told us it's heavy on the neck back when she first got the thing in calf. But she also goes into Aegon the Sixth talk here, re-establishing for us that he died, that her brother's son died back in the sack of King's Landing. So again, George really going against subtlety this time out. Yes, let's establish that character that we've assumed has been dead for all this time, just to remind us of what's coming up. Another really important quote. To rule Marine, I must win the Miranese, however much I may despise them. Hmm. Again, really doesn't instill confidence for what's coming, does it? Already at this point, she despises them. It's just going to get worse. It's enough to have the problem of betrayal and a city accepting you, but when you get right down to it, Daenerys does not want to be here. She does not want to rule this land. Marine means nothing to her. It's the lives. It's the saving lives. She was forced into it to do that. And she already resents the situation. And that frustration is just going to continue dragging her down emotionally as that frustration builds and builds and builds. I must have said that part three times already. Again, get used to it. We're going to see a lot. But that's intentional. George is repeating these things and really just hammering it with us to make us feel like Daenerys. That's how, he's going to frustrate us like Daenerys is frustrated. And that's how great of a writer he is to put us in her shoes. Or the little slippers I think she wears this time. Now we get to meet more of the new crew. The new council that will surround Danny for the book advising and pulling and pushing without us really ever getting any hint on which ones are genuine 
if any. And there's some specific design around why they are as they are beyond just lining up with the land. We have a whole bunch of Miranese people to meet very quickly as we catch up with how Danny's been ruling here in Marine. This is new to us, but we're immediately made to suspect them. Danny feels off kilter throughout the whole book, so the reader is made to feel the same. Like I say, George is expert at doing this. We don't know these people. We don't have their background. We don't know whether we should like them or not. And that's never really going to be solved. We never really get to know them, to be honest. As Queen, Danny has to keep them at a certain length, even without all this suspicion. Other rulers, whether it be John or Rob or Tyrion, have either interacted with their own players and councilmen and teammates before they became rulers, or the reader has. And generally, they have more growth moments with them as they go. But Danny does not. She's just kind of skipped a few levels and walked into a room of new people. So they remain kind of cardboard throughout the book because she has to keep suspecting them and not letting them in, which ties into her intense feeling of loneliness throughout. I'm surprised I haven't brought that word up already in this chapter. Loneliness. Danny is lonely throughout this whole book. Another reason why she latches onto Dario so much because he at least releases that feeling a little bit for her. But in general, yeah. It is a lonely, lonely book. It's lonely at the top, isn't it? That's what we learn. And it's really tough for us to read. This conundrum of not knowing who to trust and who else, it's not made easier by the reread either, which is actually something semi-new to us because we don't ever get any further information on the bunch. We do learn, okay, we learn about Ben Plum, for example, but in general, we still don't have answers on who's a harpy and who's done this and who's on what side. We're not given a new shade to see this arc through in terms of their loyalties. We're just left with the same confusions. Now, normally, for most of the other books, thanks to later information, we can look back at it through a different lens, but we don't have that for dance. In general, I'd say Danny is one of the best aspects of this book for a reread and appreciating it more than the first time round, but for these specific characters, we've just run out of space in the future and know nothing more than this. So again, we get to keep that frustration that Danny does. It's a court of people invested in Marine as well. We've got to remember that. These people are there for Marine, not Danny herself, and definitely not for her wanting to return to Westeros, for the most part anyway. So she's already missing Jorah in some sense, which is equally hard for both her and us to admit because, you know, He's a creep. I wonder if young Griff Fagan is actually going to experience the same type of feeling when he reaches King's Landing. It's nowhere near as culturally different, of course, and his family has a history there, so it's not going to be the same, but it will be odd for him to just walk in to a new place, to a new council that he doesn't know. Now, obviously, he's going to be bringing a lot more people with him, so he does kind of get away with it that way, but it's just interesting to think of. And Danny already in this chapter is looking at people and thinking, do, do I suspect you? Do I suspect you? Resnak, he's kind of highlighted here as someone that might not be trustworthy. But we again, we just don't know. And tempting as it is, I think I'll be refraining from constantly guessing chapter to chapter who is actually against her. I didn't know then. I don't really know now, if I'm honest to you. So we're just going to have to wait for wins for that. Now that's just in the council room. That's just in her immediate. What about the city? Because there's lots of problems there. Skahaz, he lists some of the noble enemies. So we get plenty of just lining stuff up now. And he gives particular focus to House Pal. There's another quote for you. Women do not forget. Women do not forgive. So what we're saying is the women remember, just like the North. And we've just seen plenty of that in Feast of Crows, haven't we? With the Sand Snakes, with Cersei, with Stoneheart. But the best connection for this book, in terms of remembering old grudges, is Barbary Dustin, who's both Northern and a woman. So we'll get to that much later on. Now what about this focus on House Powell? I wonder if they're going to take a larger role going forward as they emphasise so much here. As Danny explains to us, she's almost wiped out their male side when she arrived. So there's motivation from these women who do not forget. But yet rereaders know they're not actually going to show up much in this book, so maybe in the future. Perhaps because they're operating behind the shadows, could be. They are noted as running away later at Daznak's pit, but I'm not sure that tells us anything, because to be honest, I'd be running too. 
So even as this council meeting goes on, and while listening to the different opinions of Resnak and Skahaz, Danny is just constantly wondering and second-guessing here, always worried about who is around her and who she should trust. We see the idea of those three betrayals that she learnt at the House of the Undying has really stuck with her. Interestingly, it didn't seem much of a problem for her immediately after. Jorah was always the suspicious one, so she didn't have to be burdened with that too much. But since Jorah has made a second betrayal himself, it seems Danny is sliding into the mindset much easier now. Of course, that's understandable and that's only going to grow Jora made that possibility a reality he opened that door and that one hurt really deep so she's definitely on her toes now she's looking for that next betrayal she's she's on the outlook it seems the undying really won in a way they have real estate in her mind and we see how difficult their proclamation is making her life the decisions she makes here in this council meeting and actually in a minute in the third act of the chapter they go to show that Danny isn't thinking too in depth or long term although she's still miles and miles ahead of what Cersei was like in Feast for Crows and it's probably because her mind simply isn't invested in the long term health of Marine when you get right down to it still she's had zero training for this again way less than a Cersei for example she's barely even seen a court before her main tutor would have been for Cerys of old people and she's still doing fairly well overall she just needs to go that extra step in most cases and she this is a learning arc for let's not forget but Danny and Cersei just to keep this comparison going for a second are also very much tied into prophecies about betrayal Danny is constantly threatened with death whereas Cersei only thinks she is and we think we know by now Cersei is far more unstable and likes to blame everyone immediately and stuff Danny handles it a bit better so far this whole chapter has been about duties and responsibility but we're only just arriving in the actual center of the chapter's plot this third act that we get to where Danny has to be more dutiful and responsible than ever with her holding of court her public court so there's a good job here on actually being part of it and generally wanting to help people but this is just another layer of frustration of tedium of this endless going around in circles that doesn't actually achieve anything ideally for us this is what we've been looking forward to since the game of thrones daenerys being a queen and having her own court and holding actual power this was the aim this is what we all wanted let's remember how she began the series and considering what we've just seen just to bring her up again of cersei in the same position it's surely going to be very enjoyable of course we want to see danny doing it but it looks wrong it feels wrong this isn't quite what we or she imagined we can't blame danny for being bored or frustrated by it some of the issues brought before her are genuine and important but many are quibbling and selfish really what she actually needs is a better council who do a better job of filtering this kind of stuff and taking the brunt so Daenerys is only dealing with the really important cases but she hasn't quite got a handle on that type of setup yet as she walks down into this court and takes her seat on her little throne there's some more quick symbolism that she catches onto herself masters on one side of her hall freedmen on the other Danny constantly in the middle and that state of affairs is going to continue and never really change and this physical court setting is one we're going to get used to we're going to see it plenty as well so let's get to it let's go through uh, all these different applicants or whatever you want to call them coming to Daenerys with their problems now the first issue is another thread that needs to be set up now so they can come back later Astapor that is going to be a huge part of the book later on something we probably didn't guess prior to reading the path that Danny trod to get here is supposed to be behind us conquered dealt with in most fantasy series that would be the end of it but because this is George we have to deal with actual consequences and fallout and again because it's George it makes us question the morality of the thing we we know that Danny did a good thing in liberating the Unsullied from Astapor. We know that. We all cheered. But it did not cease to exist. Now she has to deal with what Astapor has become because of that great act. And we'll find out later, it becomes hell on earth. We don't quite get that here, but it will come via Danny's own chapters and especially Quentin's. It is horrible and it's just another thing to make Danny question her actions and what good she can actually do in the world. Oh, I do one thing, I create bad things. 
Again, the frustration. For now, it's all focused on the current King Cleon and his marriage proposal, another aspect we will see again and again until Danny feels she's basically a human bracelet being fought over. But what this Cleon has done is important as well. Instead of improving the city in any way, he's just switched around who's in charge of the whip. At the same time, she's regretting not doing something more about Yonkai because they are also popping up early here and will turn out to be the much bigger problem going forward. So that grand conquest that did so much and was so enjoyable to read has left a bitter taste in her mouth. That has an obvious effect as it would if Danny were just a run-of-the-mill person instead of a queen. She was proud of what she did, she made a difference in the world, but now it turns out it wasn't so great. So her confidence is knocked, she starts second-guessing herself, and that is a large part of her arc here as well, as well as the overshadowing of all that good she did because of all the complaining she has to hear instead now. It definitely has an effect. If we're in any doubt that George really just wants to clobber us over the head with all these different issues and aspects to consider or worry about, let's think on the fact that Astapor, Yunkai, and his Darzotharak and the fighting pits are all brought up within a page of each other. But that's very much the point, isn't it? Bury us under this avalanche, dump it all on our desk, so we can really feel how Danny feels. For all just coming at once. So here now we meet Danny's future husband, even if we've got no way to guess that in this moment. For now, his Darzolarak serves as evidence of Daenerys not being as powerful as we'd like to believe. That taking a city and controlling a city is not so simple a thing as owning three dragons. That she is beholden to give herself to a man with history and friends and money, and that's all right now just for fighting pits, not even what we're going to get onto later about maybe being able to stop the harpy and bring peace. So clearly, there's another really important building block for the Danny arc, for the marine arc in general, considering his position after Danny leaves. His dart is a complex character we don't know enough about, and I think most will come to view him as a light antagonist, even if we don't believe him to be in league with the harpies, purely for how Danny sees him and this trapped feeling that we get from him later on. Specifically, He's definitely one that makes Danny feel like a used bracelet. She's a human toe card to be shown off but never actually enjoyed. But for now, for him, is a quick paragraph or two on the importance of the fighting pits. All for very good reasons, but ignoring that core feeling that Danny has that they are wrong. She does not want them. She's already conceded so much, she wants one damn thing to hold on to, one thing that's hers. Although we rereaders know there'll be far more to concede just yet. And that's the end of his stuff for now, he only pops up very briefly, with Danny even pointedly telling us about him being a husband candidate. Remember, we already know Victorian is coming, either for himself or Euron. We have the vague outline of Quentin doing the same thing, so we know the husband problem is going to come up at some point and probably none of us at this point think that his will be the one to come out of the pack which brings up an interesting idea of all the dance povs we have in dance that weren't in feast danny is the one we have the most to expect of because of what we learned in feast if you get what i'm saying that book gave us no real hints to what would happen at the wall or to Tyrion, but it did tell us about vegetarian and quentin and don't forget marwin are all coming this way and we've just added Tyrion into the mix in that last chapter so as a first time reader already at this early juncture wondering when these different factions are going to turn up and add even more spice to the mix. Yes, they probably are. Yet we only actually get Quentin. Victorian and Tyrion are close. Who knows what's happened to Marwyn? But I do think that plays a part into why some, some people, find Dance not as satisfactory as other books. Which is fair because the Miranese knot is pretty real. I think we know that. But his dart is out, another guy is in. Who's next? This time it's Grazdan Zogalair. Definitely one of the more grabbing applicants that Danny has to deal with. He's of no real importance to the story, but illustrates the inner conflict Danny has throughout perfectly. Now just to remind you, this is the guy who had a slave who was a weaver and then she taught some 
other girls now they're free and making money and he thinks he should be compensated for that just to remind you very quickly but we're focused on danny she starts off thinking that this is the cousin of one of her big supporters so she's got to play the game and wear those rabbit ears and be respectful and then two seconds later after hearing what he wants she's basically giving him the middle finger and decreeing the opposite of what he's asking because she finds his attitude to slaves and people so morally objectionable and she simply can't stray that far away from doing the right thing it's lightning quick as part of the chapter but it really does encapsulate that constant inner struggle that Danny will have in this book. I really like that little passage there. The rest of them are also focused on consequences. Redress, Danny calls it, as we are given all these inner details of the sack and the uprising, and Danny's coming from several different angles. I am a queen over a city built on dust and death, she thinks. The dust part has always kind of been there, but Danny's coming has played a huge part in the death bit of the sack and allowing the slaves to rise up. Not just the Miranese slaves either, but those who came with her from Yunkai and Astapor, people who had been denied basic rights their entire life and were now presented with an opportunity to do whatever they want. It's no wonder so much went down. George is brilliant in this respect, of course, not just in thinking up these details and crafting these mini stories and looking at it from all these angles. We have the woman who lost her house and her husband and sons. We have the former slave whose wife had been raped by her former owner. We have the boy who was a master and had to watch his slaves came and took away his home and his family. It's, all, it's brilliant, just all these different angles. It's great thinking from George. And it gives us not just two sides of the story, but countless. We know Danny was being noble. We know Danny had the best intentions and was trying to do the right thing. But what does that matter to someone who's lost their house or saw their mother murdered or whatever? At the end of it, we absolutely can't blame this boy who comes in and goes at Danny because who wouldn't do the same? Who wouldn't join the harpies after that? All of it is so complex, right and wrongs from every source. It's very, very difficult for Danny to make decisions on all of this. She can't just condemn everything done in the sacking. She started the sacking, but she can't just turn a blind eye either. Later on, when dealing with Teich and Astoris, John will essentially have the thought that the sign of a good negotiation is that neither side is very happy. And you definitely get the sense of that here in Danny's rulings. She's already boxed in, to be honest. There's no winnings. The harpy has another son, she thinks. And she's not wrong. And that was all in the morning. Danny's barely even started her working day here. And even the food and wine taste sour and empty. It is, it's everything. Everything is dust and lifeless and not what Danny wants. That feeling is universal right now. So it's no wonder she latches onto Dario later and then Drogon eventually. Now to be fair, the pendulum swings the other way a bit with people who want to give her gifts or do her homage because George is trying to give that complete picture, which obviously includes people who adore Daenerys. While we'll see all of this in Marine now, don't forget George is also prepping us for seeing the exact same mix and duality in much more familiar Westeros. We got a lot of that set up in Feast as well. So the end of a chapter filled with about a thousand issues focuses on the one that will prove to be most important at the end, dragons. We've already tackled them getting larger, that they go off hunting now, but again, it's consequences. What are they eating? Who did their food belong to? Danny has to deal with it again, until we get the last man, who's holding something quite different. Here's your final quote of the chapter. Resnak, so Baston said quietly, hold your tongue and open your eyes. Those are no sheep bones. No, Danny thought, those are the bones of a child. So we're right back on the power of dragons and whether it's being used for a good thing. Danny is the mother of these people, so it hits even harder for all of that. But again, she has to question what she's actually bringing to the world. What effect am I having here? She loves her dragons, loves them unimaginably, but she can't be part of children dying. It's a reminder how her control over Drogon specifically is slipping, making her flying him, although more important later on, and she just can't keep up with it all. That reflects back on the personality battle. She spoke earlier of not waking the dragon, but it seems that's been done without her. She can't push that aspect of herself if this is the result, can she? So we go the opposite way, trying to be a queen instead, trying to protect Marine instead of embracing her Targaryen-ness. As with everything else, 
is with the best of intentions she wants to save children's lives but will actually end up getting frustrated getting nowhere and possibly damaging her relationship with two of the dragons at least and resulting in that eventual moment where she does go back to her dragonness because nothing else has worked she has to constantly think throughout on what she is we've already spoken about the glory that came before but now is she the solver of problems or the causer of death will she ever be able to control these things that have delivered her to this power in the first place although I think that's an unfair assessment of how much Danny has earned just on herself. I think we've covered that enough in Storm. And again, not to repeat myself, this is like in-game, where Danny had to make peace with her being a dragon over a Dothraki. In Dance, it is going to be the same thing, but between being a queen or a dragon, or a ruler or a conqueror. Does she want to protect life or end it? We know what she wants, but what is real, what's really needed? That's what she gets here at the end. Having to face the destructive power that she actually truly wields is tough to get your head around. The rest of the book is spent wrestling and dampening, but in the end, it comes out. Like before, she eventually chooses Targaryen, chooses Dragon, chooses Drogon, and ends up flying away on the back of one. It is a fantastic art. Danny wants to choose the conquering dragon knife because it seems so much less problematic than currently ruling, even if we know that's not actually true. But it's a reminder of the danger to children, like Isaiah at the end here, that pushes her to keep going with the ruling instead. She wants to bring life and protection and hasn't figured out how to accomplish that as a dragon quite yet. I think, I hope, that's what we're aiming for. The combination of the two, working out how to use something so destructive for protection, for life. I hope at least she finds out how to do that. Overall, probably, the story is that there's going to be collateral damage whatever she does. And that may well include the larger story of defeating the others as well. It's a very, very difficult beginning for her. It's a major sign of things to come. That is Daenerys 1. And that is our episode today. That is part 1 of 19, remember, of Dance of Dragons. Ah. Well, it was great to be doing it again. Thank you for joining, everybody. Yeah, true, dark in tone. Not a lot to be jolly about in these first three chapters, but still just good to be back around the folks here, especially because we're beginning with two characters where we've been waiting to see for a very, very long time. Not you, Varamir. We don't want to see you again. Please just leave. You're horrible. But we've got Tyrion and Danny. Next week, we're going to complete that Triforce of Jon. And I may as well remind you here, in fact, actually what we're doing. So like I say, next week, we begin with Jon 1. John has a bit of a meeting with Stannis and Melisandre and we basically just set up Castle Black. Then we have Bran 1, a very similar chapter in ways to Varamir, back out in the snow and the wild, dark things going on, dead things creeping around, lots of wolves. We then have our first second chapter with Tyrion 2. Tyrion gets on the move, hops in the carriage with Illyro there and moves across Essos and we'll finish with, like I mentioned earlier, Quentin 1 slash The Merchant's Man. So our first new POV, our first new arc, lots to discuss there as him and Geris or Jerris drink water we'll cover that next week and of course archibald the big man there in volantis trying to find themselves a ship so we've got lots to set up there you'll find some similar tone and some lots of problems cropping up but no one having a great time and a lot of establishment of course going forward so we'll look forward to seeing you next week thank you thank you again for rejoining us i know a long intro today don't worry it's not gonna have to be that long every time and as always i do encourage you to get in touch about anything to do with the podcast if you've got comments if you've got queries if you've got critiques send them my way we'd love to hear from you in any form you can email me at islefacespodcast at gmail.com you know me on twitter sir buckley you can find me there we've got our patreon come and have a look with the extra benefits and my writing if that's the kind of thing you're interested in you can comment on poppy you can comment on youtube you can even leave a review if you're just that amazing again thank you to wonderful patrons thank you to you for listening thank you to aziz and shaya as always and all the collective fandom that i mentioned earlier because everybody here is brilliant we are truly truly blessed we'll see you again next week thank you guys